Have today's guests arrived yet, Jimmy? We go on the air in an hour. Good. I'm glad they made it with this morning's boat of tourists. On a related note, is Jed joining us today? He's still on that retro steampunk kick? Did he not pick up on how weirded out the tourists were when they saw him? They've been mocking him something fierce on social media. We've all seen the memes. <sighs> In other news, we may not know our Orwellian overlords' identities, but I did find a way to be a small thorn in their side. <laughs> well, let me tell you. Hold it right there, Mr. Marchand. Watch where you're pointing that finger, bucko. What are you doing letting this guy in, Jimmy? I was a Go Ranger back in the 70s, so I was practically a part-time super ninja. Oh, good Godzilla. I thought I talked fast. Who in blazes are you? I am Raymond Martin, head of the Monster Island Legal Action Team. I always knew the board had an army of lawyers, so I guess that makes you the, what do they call it, attorney general? Ha <laughs> ha! That's a knee slapper, Mr. Marchand. You're what we in the law business like to call a wise guy, see? But did you not get my email that I was stopping by today? Nope. Gary told me he sent it to Jimmy. Oh? Spam folder? Likely story, Mr. From NASA. Seems I need to give my legal assistant a performance evaluation. Sounds like we both need to chat with our respective sidekicks. Not now, Jimmy. Okay, Phoenix Wright. What are you doing here? Gary tells me you filed a claim for workman's comp about that little bump on the head you got at the Gamera Gala. Yeah, because... Objection! You weren't technically on the clock for that event. But I'm the island's primary media source, and nobody else was there to cover it. Hmm. Did you have a press pass? No. Objection! Haha! <laughs> I refer you to the legal concept of discovery, Mr. Marchand. No press pass equals no evidence. Without evidence of qualified credentials, you had no media status, and therefore no workman's comp. But I was live-tweeting the event! Ah, you kids these days may love your tweeter and instant graham cracker, but the board doesn't recognize them as official media outlets. Not your accounts, anyway. <sighs> okay, Boomer. Well, I look great for my age, don't I? You're a regular James Cagney. <laughs> Besides, Mr. Marchand, from what I hear, you were assaulted from behind, stuffed into the infamous Megalon crate, and dumped on a Japanese beach. By definition, that's not an accident, so no workman's comp. And maybe I should file assault charges. Against whom? Uh, I don't know. Hmm. I'll get Gary on that lickety split. Besides, from what I read, you went to the Monster Island Infirmary, not a hospital, and were told by a nurse, not a doctor, to take two aspirin and call her in the morning. More like in a week, but sure. Sounds to me like you're fine, Mr. Marchand. And according to this clause here in your contract, it falls under minor injuries. So again, no workman's comp. All right, I get it. Now, you'll excuse me. My guests will be here soon. Hmm, and who are the lucky tourists today? Michael Hamilton and Damon Noyes. Ah, Mr. Hamilton. Gary and I spent a whole day scrutinizing the island's safety codes to make sure your producer over there didn't violate any procedures when he dumped that guy in the jungle. As for Mr. Noyes, huh, that guy's a wet sock. He never delivers my mail on time. Uh, whatever. We have a Gamera movie to cover. 
Ah, yes, Mr. Marchand, and you will give it a glowing review, won't you? It says so right here that you're contractually obligated to do so. Except, MIFV's classified as a film appreciation show and not a film review show, so I don't have to. Boom! Hmm. Well played, Mr. Marchand. You are technically correct, and that's the best kind of correct. If I ever need to replace Gary, I'll give you a call. <laughs> Thanks. Now, go post your kaiju wisdom memes or whatever on Twitter. Toodaloo, Mr. Marchand. The day is young, Jimmy. And I'm going to be making the wisest of cracks to get through today's movie. Live from the KIJU studios in beautiful Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, episode 36, The Misties vs. Camera vs. Gauss. Hello, Kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the film curator here on Monster Island, Nate Marchand. And with me today are not one, but two MIFV Max members. Starting with, here on my left, is the co-host of Kaiju Weekly and the host of the Kaiju Groupie Podcast. You know him, you love him. Michael, I got shot by Aaron Burr Hamilton. Hello, everybody. It is so good to be back this time. It's been a while. And Jimmy, what the f***, man? <laughs> I'm going to have to dump button that one. <laughs> oh, come on, dude. I mean, look, let me tell you something. When you say you're going to pick somebody up for an appointment, you keep your word, dude. Like, you don't leave someone stranded. Thank God I have a friend on the board who owed me a favor. Wait a second. Hold on, hold on, Jimmy. You didn't get Michael here today? What happened? That's part of your job description. Oh, don't oh, give me oh, that Don't excuse. give me that bull crap, Jimmy. Just, okay, look. Nathan, just for so you know, Jimmy and I had a little disagreement. He Again? got a little bit mad at me from the last time. He said I made a mess in the cockpit. And But Jimmy, when you say bring snacks and not be specific about what types of snacks you want, I'm going to bring you whatever I feel like bringing you. And just because you can't eat and fly at the same time is not my problem. I thought he put a better navigation system, a better autopilot, I would have thought, in Serpentera. I mean, this is what, the third model, technically? Well, apparently this model also has some kinks to work out. Thanks a lot, Jimmy. I appreciate that. I got mustard all over my jeans. Oh, come on, dude. Come on. Okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. Okay. That's enough. That's enough. Jimmy, you really need to break this habit you have of getting into conflicts with the tourists. Okay. I need these people to keep coming back because I like them. All right. I know, look, uh, but I have no, no really hard feelings towards Jimmy. Jimmy and I are still good. You know, like I said, thankfully, I, I have a friend on the board that owed me a favor from the last time I was here on the island. And I greatly appreciate that person very, very much. And thankfully, I'm here with you now. So, Jimmy, if you want to, let's just bury the hatchet on that issue, at least until next time you screw up. Okay, no more talk about your concealed carry laser pistol, okay? 
You keep it in the drawer and where it's it's supposed to stay. All right? Okay. How did you get here today anyway, Michael? I technically can't tell you. They may be keeping a secret. Of course they are. Anyway. And then over here on my right is a fresh face to the podcast. Although he has been a fan for a very long time, for what I understand, I present to you, kaiju lovers, mailman by day, actor by night, Damon, no relation to Adam Noise. Konnichiwa gozaimasu. <laughs> Hello, Damon. <laughs> hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Good. Glad to be here. That's a little warmer than where I'm used to. Which is saying a lot because uh, we had a little bit of an incident this week. Uh, somebody, well, this is pure theory on my part because nobody really knows how it happened, but Baurugan, not Baragon, Baurugan got loose and iced up a good part of the island. Jimmy over here had to take Mechanicong Mark II to wrestle that rainbow shooting gator down and put him back into the kaiju zone. Are you talking about Barugon the snow lizard or Barugon the the cute little puppy dog kaiju? Yeah, no, uh, the ice lizard. Definitely. There is no justice for Barugon at all. Ah, okay. Okay. But I did notice when I was flying in, I did notice all the frost damage on your uh, uh, tropical plants. Yeah, which is surprising given that my pseudo sister, who is apparently very, very good friends with all the Mothras here on the island, in particular Mothra Leo, managed to get him to thaw the island out with his Deuce Ex Mothrica powers because that's what he does. So at least we took care of that. Like a moth to flame, you know. Yeah, basically. Nathan, before we get started, can I ask you, what does that smell? Like, it's like this, I don't. I can't put my finger on it. Is everything okay? Oh, good grief. I must be becoming nose blind to this jet. Yeah, you. I thought you were a little bit better at fumigating that British man's mm, cologne. I don't care if it's the Baron or whatever it is. Nobody needs to smell that stuff a couple of weeks after he's been in the studio. I mean, it's not a strong smell, but there's enough of it. It's giving me a slight headache. So, Jet, if you don't mind, could you please open a window? Michael, you realize there isn't a window here in the studio, right? Well, can't Jet just punch, punch, punch a window into existence? Apparently he can. And that's despite the fact that he's going through this weird pseudo retro steampunk phase. I mean, you've seen the memes at this point. People have been making fun of him pretty hard, but apparently he had to do it for singular point. I'm just saying. All right. I'm glad we've all been having a good time because I, uh, I'm i going to confess it right now. I'm kind of trying to prolong this as long as possible because I'm not in a big rush to see today's movie. But I am contractually obligated. Today, we're going to be covering Gamera versus Gauss as part of our continuing coverage of the year of... Gamera! Fun. A masterpiece of the musical arts, right? There. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Quite right. Yes. But unfortunately, I don't get to experience that because contractual obligations and the board. You guys are going to go to the big screening room and you're going to watch the MST3K episode while I go into the side room and watch this thing in the original Japanese. 
Damon, did you remember the beer? Oh, I brought an entire cooler of various alcohols. Ah, other perfect. Al- mind-altering substances. So. Perfect. Awesome. I, well, Let's uh, go. Yeah, save those for after the show because I need sober guests for today. Oh, what's, what's the fun in that, man? We're not watching Yeti. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> All right. And also because... I have to bring my usual academic excellence to this show, even for Gamera. Academic what? You heard me. Today's toku topic will be the Senrizuka, I hope I said that right, struggle, which, believe it or not, does have very close ties to this movie. In the meantime, while we go off and watch both versions of this movie, you'll get to hear me read the entertaining info dump, which I am contractually obligated to read because Jimmy writes them and, well, I like to keep my job and not get shot into space. So, are you ready, gentlemen? I'm ready. I was born ready. Gamera is a benevolent and heroic kaiju. While he does go to the erupting Mount Fuji to eat fire, he saves Aichi and seeks to kill Gauss seemingly for altruistic reasons throughout the film. That being said, he behaves quite animalistically while fighting Gauss. Gauss is a feral and bloodthirsty bat-like kaiju awakened by volcanic eruptions. His only discernible motivation is to feed on humans and drink blood to satisfy his hunger. Eiichi Kanemaru is the Kenny of this film, an insightful and adventurous schoolboy obsessed with both Gamera and Gauss. He advocates for everyone to trust Gamera and offers insights into Gauss that, somehow, the adults are too dumb to figure out. The dutiful and persistent Shiro Sutsumi is a construction foreman trying to get villagers to sell their land so a highway can be built, and he fends off the villager sabotage attempts. He later helps the JSDF with their anti-Gauss operations. Eiichi's grandfather, Tatsuimon Kanemaru, is the stubborn but wise village elder who at first intends to obstruct construction until the villagers can get more money, but he later relents believing Gauss is punishment from the gods for their greed. Sumiko Kanemaru is Eiichi's sensible older sister who constantly chides him for his obsession with kaiju, but apparently has no way of keeping him from barging into important adult meetings. The human and kaiju plotlines quickly become unified since the kaiju appear quickly and influence slash interfere with the human storylines. Gauss is the problem. Gamera attacks Gauss to save Eiichi, but is gravely wounded and flies away to take the boy back to the village. The nearby residents, after learning Gauss is nocturnal, fill their areas with light using spotlights and other sources to ward off the kaiju. The JSDF engages Gauss with tanks, jets, and artillery, but Gauss decimates them. He flies to Nagoya, terrorizing the city, but Gamera attacks again. This eventually leads to Gamera biting Gauss's foot at dawn, which the vampiric monster severs with his beam attack and flies away to regrow his foot in a cave. The severed foot is later discovered by dock workers, and scientists learn that sunlight harms Gauss, so they concoct Operation Whirlybird. A giant bowl of artificial blood is set on a giant turntable, which attracts Gauss. Gauss ends up like a drunk DJ after the turntable spins right round, making him dizzy. 
The turntable engine shorts out, starting a fire, which Giaus extinguishes with gas and retreats to his lair. The problem is solved by Gamera with a bit of help from the humans. Eiichi, who is inexplicably smarter than the adults, tells the JSDF to start a forest fire to weaken Giaus and strengthen Gamera, which they implement with some help from the villagers. Gamera appears and attacks Giaus, which ends with him dragging the bat-like creature by the throat into an erupting Mount Fuji. The script by series mainstay Nissan Takahashi is a relatively simple story with several interconnected subplots that have their own sets of characters. These all converge by the end. The special effects were supervised by Noriaki Yuasa, who returned to the director's chair. While this was done as a cost-cutting measure, it also provided greater uniformity between the drama and special effects scenes. While the film was given a slightly lower budget compared to Gamera vs. Baurugan, 60 million yen, it was still considered a Class A picture. Much of the budget went toward animating Gauss's supersonic beam attack directly on the film stock, which cost the equivalent of $1,000 in yen each time it was used. Yuasa also experimented with ambitious large props for gags like Gauss cutting the car in half. As usual, practical fire was used for Gamera's flame breath, but this time it is done with an empty suit and a better hidden nozzle. Other techniques used included miniatures, rotoscoping, and pyrotechnics. While they don't quite match Eiji Tsuburaya's work at Toho, Yuasa's effects are surprisingly good here. This is a light and often comical film, but it has a moderate amount of gravitas since Gauss is treated as a legitimate threat. With its heroic anthropomorphic turtle kaiju and an ancient vampire bat-bird pterosaur and the most unobservant adults ever, this is a fantasy film. This isn't an experimental film since it is mostly using familiar tropes and other elements from the previous Gamera movies as well as Toho's kaiju films. However... This is an expansion of style for the Gamera films because it was here that the series formula, particularly that of the Showa era, was solidified. The monsters appear frequently, the child character knows better than the adults, and it's clearly aimed at a child audience. In one form or another, the films that follow would borrow from this one. It's also notable for introducing Gamera's only recurring foe. Despite Gamera versus Baurogan underperforming at the box office, this film was made to capitalize on the growing kaiju trend, albeit with some course correction. One of those, as mentioned, was to aim this film at a child audience, who were the most common demographic going to the theater to see these films. While box office figures are unavailable, it was the highest grossing entry in the Showa Gamera series when released in Japan March 15, 1967, the year of the kaiju. In fact, it was the highest grossing of the five kaiju films released that year in Japan, although it opened to the usual lukewarm reviews from critics. It remains popular to this day and is largely regarded as the best of the Titanic Terrapins classic movies. It has a 5.0 with 1,795 ratings on IMDb. The dub version of the film was released in the United States by American International Television in 1967 under the title Return of the Giant Monsters. Aside from two quick shots of English language signs filmed and inserted into this release, the film remains uncut. The dub was most likely made by Elda concurrently with War of the Monsters since the dub actors mispronounced Gamera's name the same way. 
The international dub commissioned by Daae and recorded in Hong Kong was released stateside by Sandy Frank Film Syndication in 1987 on home media as Gamera vs. Gauss, without a Y. As usual, it had new English language credits. It was this version that was lampooned not once, but twice on Mystery Science Theater 3000, once on KTMA and once on Comedy Central. Several forces are at play in this film. Progress and tradition clash as a construction company attempts to build a highway through the Japanese countryside, but faces resistance from villagers who sabotage the construction and refuse to sell their land. Given that the villagers are trying to get the company to pay them more money, it could be argued that both parties are motivated by greed, but the film definitely sides with the company. Eiichi's childlike faith in Gamera puts him at odds with the more sensible adults, even though his observations about the kaiju prove to be true. Despite this, the humans still distrust Gamera because, well, he's a kaiju with a bit of a bad rep. Nature and civilization are in conflict as Mount Fuji erupts for the first time in centuries. Relatedly, science and the military are unable to stop the furious Gauss. A handful of themes are expressed in the film. The adults learn to trust Aichi's insights and not just write him off as an ignorant child. In doing so, they also learn to trust the benevolent Gamera. The villagers realize their greed has only brought them trouble and agree to cooperate with the construction company. They are also united with the company in the Gauss countermeasures. Agreement and unity are sought and achieved as is typical in Japanese culture, throughout the film. Aichi's wonder at Gamera shows not only the kaiju's benevolence, but his connection to humanity, and by extension, to his audience. Well, we got that over with. Sadly, it's only downhill from here. <sighs> Let's try to keep the good vibes going with the next segment, The Toku Talk. Okay, I will admit that wasn't as bad as I thought it would be, but maybe it's the Stockholm Syndrome settling in. I'm not sure. How do you guys feel? Gaios, 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 come and me wanna go home. That was a lot of fun. That was a, that was a lot, a lot of fun. It wasn't um, nearly as bad as other entries, I suppose. Yeah, I'm not uh, looking forward yeah. to that. I thought the last one... Barugan, I thought that would be a nice little respite because it breaks from what we think of as the Gamera formula quite a bit. And this is the one where it gets solidified. But, you know, the funny thing is, and I saw this in a lot of my research as well, this is actually fairly balanced when it comes to the adult-to-kid ratio in this. And I honestly thought Eiichi, that's our Kenny in this one. Right. I honestly thought he was going to be the Kenniest of the Kennys. He's not. <laughs> oh, hey, I have to point something out about this. He is not of what you would consider traditional body type either. No. So a way to go, Dia Studios, for representing non-standard physical types. I thought that was a, a pretty impressive thing. Oh, they, uh, they got the chubby kid in there? Yeah. Got the chubby kid, and <laughs> while he was just as annoying as every other Kenny on the planet. I, I don't know about that. I've seen the rest of these at one point or another, and I might actually have to rank him a little bit lower. Now, thankfully, he's not the psychopath that, <laughs> that Toshio Kenny Sakurai was in the first movie. This is true. As a, However, as, a, as a husky kid myself growing up, I'm offended. 
<laughs> okay, that Elijah. <laughs> no. Maybe. <laughs> By the Although way, I, Elijah, enjoy your lead for now. Mm. I did notice that the one thing that seems it, I, it starts here, but all Kennys are fearless and reckless in the face of the unknown. Every single one of them. It's like they don't have that fear response, which as a species, that would be a detriment. We'd be dead. It'd be a, a failed experiment if that had happened. Uh, indeed. And, now, admittedly, he's not as annoying as some of the other kids. Uh, Calm down, Jimmy. Your movie is the next one, so save it for then. I'm going to have to argue with you because this Kenny, in particular, treats Gamera as his own personal taxi service. <laughs> Specifically has the line, take me home now. So what How entitled saying... do you have to be as a child? <laughs> To get on the back of a kaiju and and demand it take you home. Yeah, you this kid is definitely a brat. Well, you do oh, realize God. that there are, I think, at least once a month, especially now, since the board in its infinite wisdom has decided to declare Gamera king of the monsters and not Godzilla or Kong. Yeah, that went well. Yeah. He does give the kids rides. There's a special day set aside every month where the kids all gather around and they jump on his shell. We install nice little seats like roller coasters on his back, and he gives the kids a nice little ride around the island. I mean, that's wonderful and all, and I get that, but to start off with the psychopath <laughs> and then to have the entitled kid, you're not setting yourself up, Gamera. You're looking like a punching bag here. A little bit, but... Gamera the enabler. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> Yeah, but let's talk about Eiji here a little bit, because i got a fair amount of notes on little Eiji here. <laughs> uh, okay, he's uh, I would say he's not nearly as annoying as Psycho Kenny. No, definitely not. And, well, he's better than what is ahead, because I know. Shut up, Jimmy. But this movie does fall into one of those very common complaints that people have with the Showa Gamera series, and that is making the kids look smarter than the adults. Yes. Now, definitely. there were several instances where this happened. And you know what? I would be okay if it happened once. But when it keeps happening, I start to question what is wrong with those adults. I'm sorry. The kid figures out that Gauss is nocturnal. The kid figures out that Gauss doesn't like fire and says, why don't you just burn the forest down? And oh, what was it? There was one other one that he, fi oh, he figured, uh, well, now, what was it? There's one other thing that he figures out about Gauss that nobody else did. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I would give you one, but when you do it three times, I think you might be surrounded by really stupid adults. <laughs> was it his regenerative abilities? I think that so. What, Something like that. that. I think so. I think that I, I may have missed that part, but it's like, I think he does help figure out that Gauss can regenerate limbs. I think it, it came sometime after Gamera bit his foot off. Yeah. Which I hope that was tasty. And maybe, the, and maybe it was only just noticing, Oh look, he still has his foot. I maybe mean, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't anything major, but well, yeah, but then they found the toe later. Gamera right, probably right. only got a little bit of a taste of it. By the way, Damon, you'll appreciate this. My note for that was, <laughs> this reminds me of Reptilicus. So, <laughs> Oh, man, uh, a monster after my own heart. Uh, how is Reptilicus doing? He wasn't looking so well last time I was here on the island. Uh, he's been a little bit sick. Uh, they were a little concerned he had Kaiju COVID. Uh, thankfully, he ah. tested negative, so that's good. But, well, okay. That's good. So I hope it didn't stunt his growth. <laughs> 
Yeah, let's hope not. But we had a little bit of a scare with the Retosaurus because, you know, he had the thing. But that was prehistoric COVID, so that was even worse. But anyway, and I don't mind this kid's performance. The little actor is good. For what I understand, that little actor, I can't remember his first name. His last name is Abe. He apparently disappeared like a lot of child actors from these movies. He just disappeared in the early 70s, and no one really knows what became of him. He became a salary man. Like they all did. Probably. <laughs> or he became part of the red bamboo. We don't yeah. know. Oh, there you go. Oh, well, there you go. Making heavy water on, on the island. Except I think that that operation has uh, ceased since then. I, I'm not sure what's going on with them anymore. Oh, they've diversified. They are now into, I believe, action figures. Bootleg Andy. action figures, I'm sure. Well, of course, of course. You're not, you know, you're not going to get the real thing from them. I think I saw last time I was on the island. One of them approached me and asked me if I wanted to buy a watch, and I just walked in the other direction very quickly. Because, so, yeah. yeah, smart move, smart very move. Quickly. But and here's the other thing, and this gets worse as the movies go on. This kid keeps showing up to all of the adults' meetings so he can say, "I know more about Gamera and Gauss than you," and all I did was scrapbook about it. But see, he has and, a press pass. Well, apparently. Exactly. The, reason, the reason I know he has a press pass is because the first adult he meets is that journalist on the side of the mountain. Who becomes and the first, uh, not victim. well, not the first victim of Gauss, but no. the first one to get eaten. Which I actually wrote down. I was like, this is a marked difference than a Sekizawa Toho script. Because Sekizawa like to have reporters as heroes. The, the reporters that we see in this, one is a liar and a coward and gets eaten. And then the yep. other one is like, oh my gosh, the thing that they tried to do to kill Gauss didn't work, even though all that really happened was he just flew away in time before the sun could kill him. We're all going to die now. Okay, dude, you're such a pessimist, all right? Uh, you are why nobody watches cable news. I'm just saying... <laughs> <laughs> well, he was from one of those rag, you know, Sunstar or you know, Daily News or something like yeah. that. He didn't really matter. Yeah, but my point being, I could understand having the kid there the first time because he was an eyewitness. He gave a first-hand account of Gauss. He gave a first-hand account about Gamera and all that. But then he keeps showing up. He keeps barging in. And you know, the only thing it really does is it gives him an opportunity to prove he's smarter than the adults and to give his sister something to do because all she does the entire movie is scold him. That is the oh, only reason she exists. And let's talk about the on-again, off-again British accent she had in the dub. <laughs> <laughs> oh I wish God. I could. I didn't get to see it. <laughs> it was there one minute, gone the next sentence, back for the third sentence. It's like, make up your mind, woman. <laughs> Uh, maybe she was bilingual by accented <laughs> by yeah by dialected Dial- i don't like, know i, I, I mean make... as an actor yes i do have a variety of dialects to choose from but when i choose one for a character i stick with it <laughs> because that's only common sense how yeah, else they well, going to identify you well maybe it was maybe because that's sort of the theme with some of these early gamma films where it's like experimentation is the key maybe she was just experimenting well it was the 60s avant-garde theater was a thing that's true that's true andy warhol and all that he was an artist not an actor i know but that he, no, he, but andy warhol's frankenstein is a movie by the way oh i'll, I'll need well, to that check sound, that out that sounds fascinating we it need does. to cover that it's, one it's you have to either be stoned or drunk to watch it trust me it's the not- best <laughs> kind of movie right there yeah yeah but no uh, here's the thing though since we're talking about a uh, here's some interesting things i found out about aichi a lot of the sources i looked at on this movie actually argued that this was the most personal 
Gamera film for director Noriaki Yuasa, who did all but one of these classic Gamera movies. Really? Yeah. Because Aichi apparently, and I don't know if it just, some of my sources made it sound like it was just happenstance, but other ones said that it was done intentionally, so I'm not sure. Aichi is believed to actually be modeled after Yuasa, and apparently that little actor looks so much like him, people thought he was director Yuasa's son. Well, ain't that a kick in the pants? Yeah, and he kept having to tell him, no, he's not my kid. (laughs) And Patrick Maceus, who wrote the introductory essays for each movie in the big Gamera set from Arrow, actually said that Aichi, we've talked about it, writing Gamera was a personal statement that while the kids may like Godzilla, Gamera is very close to his fans. Well, you know, now that you bring it up, an interesting reason for Abe's disappearance in the 70s could be that perhaps he was actually was him as a child. Was the director as a child? He used a time machine, pulled him in, <laughs> got to be in the movie. And then when he wasn't needed anymore, he sent him back. <laughs> it's very possible because there is time travel in these movies. Uh, <clears throat> you know, gave himself that... Yeah, exactly, Jimmy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, actually, <laughs> Jimmy's trying to say that he. This is why he hates time travel. <laughs> Everybody hates time travel. I think it's fascinating. I'm with Captain Janeway from Voyager. I oh no, love the idea of it. Oh, don't get me but, started on how many times that ship cheated its fate. But <laughs> okay. it's not cheating if it works. Uh, I suppose. <laughs> Uh, I mean, this no. film was a, this film was a very stark contrast to what Toho was doing because this what this came out in sixty seven sixty seven uh, the year this, of the kaiju the year yeah. that every studio in Japan decided to release a kaiju movie and I found out this is interesting I found out that's in part because the Japanese government was giving out loans to movie studios to make movies for export and kaiju movies were popular overseas. So that's why you had studios like Nakatsu deciding, hey, we should get in on this kaiju action, even though we've never done it before. (laughs) Yeah, it's like because during this time, during this year, you had Son of Godzilla. You had Gamma versus Gauss. You had the X from Outer Space. King Kong Escapes. Uh, Was it King Kong Escapes was in 60s? Are you sure it was in 67? Mm -hmm. Okay. Because Toho had two kaiju movies. That's right, because they put the majority of the budget towards King Kong Escapes and left little to no budget for Son of Godzilla. Something like that. And then you also had Gappa, and that's just the Japanese studios. And then over in South Korea, you had Yonguri, Monster from Oh, that's right. That was the other one I was trying to think of, too, because I knew there was one, a non-Japan film that was made during that time period. I about said Polgasari, but Polgasari was... uh, (laughs) 80s. Yeah, yeah, that was the 80s. Uh, Very different. (laughs) And then on TV, you had Ultra 7 premiered, and I think... I think there were some other tokusatsu superhero shows and whatnot that were on at this time, but so but kaiju were everywhere at this point. It was like yeah. how superheroes are now in the United States. They're everywhere. And it's interesting that if you go back to 1957, they had the same explosion, but with uh, atomic age monsters. Mm-hmm. 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 And you had so many that came out in that year. It's, I mean, if you want to go back further, start with 54's Them and just go forward, and you had this glut of atomic age mutation monsters that went all the way up until I think 59 is when they kind of petered out. 
Mm-hmm. You channel surf on things like Amazon Prime and Tubi. It's amazing how many of these sort of these these low budget monster films came out in the early to mid 50s. And it all seems like they came out within like a year or two of each other. They were just cranking them out. It's the same thing once UFOs became a thing. Mm-hmm. Boom, you see a bunch of alien movies come out at the same time. And that was in the late 50s, early 60s. And that was another huge thing. So it just it just depends. And Gamera did the same thing because what was Gamera spinning around looks like a flying saucer. So yep. combine the two images, monster, flying saucers, boom, put them together and you've got a movie. Yeah. Although, interestingly, I read that it, starting in this movie, they were starting to get away from doing the flying saucer thing and having him fly with just two of the jets going off so they could save some money. Of course. Everything is a cost-cutting well, yeah. Well, and the interesting thing is, is this didn't have as big of a budget as Barugan. Barugan got lots of money. This still had enough money that it was considered a class A picture. But I think this one had, what was, uh, I think it was 60 million yen. But after Gauss, the budget slowly it, it, took a, it, it took a dive. I don't even know if it's slowly. I, I really don't. Yeah, well, the, the, the ironic thing about that is that the budget started to go down and Gauss was the most successful out of all of the Showa Gamera movies. It made the most money. But Daie was dying. Which kind of makes sense because I think we touched on it earlier. This is the film where they got the formula right. It's just unfortunate that there was no, like there was really no creativity put towards the formula after this movie. No. The, other than the fact that they introduced aliens. That, but, you know, every monster movie at that point had to all- introduce they also, other than the formula and making Gamera the friend to all children trope that it has become, they also went a completely different route than the Godzilla movies at the time. They went for gruesomeness and gore over the inherent goofiness that suddenly started happening in the, in the Godzilla, uh, not trilogy, good lord. <laughs> yeah, uh, Katakawa or Daie, they embraced blood and gore way right. earlier on in their lifespan. Yeah, than, than uh, the that Godzilla was actually franchise. something exactly. that that yeah. was actually something Yuasa wanted to do because he thought it made the kaiju seem more animalistic. Mm-hmm. And but, uh, I would say that this movie Subaraya is where I uh, was all like, "No, we're not doing that." But oh, oh, wait, we need to kill a monster on Ultraman. Decapitate it. I don't care. Uh-huh. I, what? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's nowhere near as gruesome as say Ultraman was, but it's still by kaiju standards in the '60s, it was pretty gruesome. This was pretty nasty. I, uh, both Gamera and Gauss bleed a lot. I didn't realize that one creature could house that much blood, either one of them. Mm-hmm. And I'm really surprised that Gamera didn't get his arm sliced off once and his tail sliced off another and his brain fried another because you know, Gauss scored a couple of good headshots on him. I'm just saying. I- <laughs> well, so you got to remember, scalps bleed profusely because there's very little skin over the bone. This mm-hmm. is true. So it's, all the blood vessels are right there. So those headshots, not such a big deal. No, I would just you know, would have Concerned that the, I just would have, I just would have been concerned it would have went straight through the skull, straight to his brain. But you know, I uh, guess camera size of a peanut, you know. Oh yeah, but who are you, the scientist from the American version <laughs> of King Kong versus Godzilla? What is this if you crazy talk? I can introduce you to a few scientists who will tell you otherwise, good sir. <laughs> Fine, I'll take your word for it. How well, is Nick doing, by the way? Don't take my word for it. Take the scientist's <laughs> word for it. You know, I never claim to be a kaijuologist. Just say. I'm just an educated amateur. That's all. Yes. Aren't we, aren't we all? Exactly. All right. But since we're on yeah. the subject of Gauss, we would be remiss. Because yeah. he is the title opponent. He's the other half of the title in this. And he is Gamera's Ghidorah. 
but have we determined officially whether or not he is a bat or a bird? No one seems to really be in agreement over that. Even because now. that is a contention that even Travis and I had on Kaiju Weekly. We, we could not definitively say whether or not Gauss was a bat or a bird. I'm in the camp that he is a bat. Although, and where Travis is in the camp that he is a bird. So we really cannot agree either way. I can tell you that bat would probably make a little bit more sense because story has it that since Toho had a little bit of success with Frankenstein Conquers the World and using Frankenstein, you know, Frankie, Mm -hmm. they decided, Mm -hmm. well, why don't we do Dracula? In fact, the working title for this movie was, no joke, Gamera versus Vampire. Oh, jeez. So, well, I mean, and, but, you know, but still, yeah, you, you you, I don't get vampire and, bat from this. No. Well, to be fair. He drinks blood. Yeah. Now, that brings up an interesting point. They specifically say, Gaios is known to like human blood. Really? When was this established? I mean, yeah, he eats people it's, and people are filled with blood, but... Where's the observational data? Where's the scientific method? Where's that, the beef? It, it's just because Aichi said it, right? Of course, well, because the, the child is clearly no smarter exactly. than all the adults. But I do have to say that when Gauss first comes out of the mountain and he's reaching for the journalist that first time, they have him walking on folded wings. And even though it's a Gamera movie, it's you know on the cheap, that was one of the nicest, most, quote, realistic, unquote, parts of a kaiju that I've seen in a long time. Yeah, mm-hmm. actually, the big hand was pretty impressive, I will say. It, and it, that the, the, that sequence where he's behind the mountain and he slowly comes out from behind the mountain. Okay, yeah, that was yeah. pretty impressive. It was very well done, and I was very impressed. And got to say, he looked good. Mm-hmm. But He's I, no Rodan. I, but I want to know where they got their x-rays from to know that Gauss had a double throw. In their defense, because maybe this wasn't in the dub, or maybe you didn't hear it over the bots, the scientist said, this is pure conjecture on my part. This is just what I think is going on. They might have, but by that same token, they had a cutaway to show the two separate spinal columns Mm -hmm. going through his neck. It's like, well, this is obviously a failed Siamese twin then. Yeah. That stuff doesn't happen. You know, uh, Michael, do you think your uh, your friend, I can't remember his name, but the guy who hosts Cinematic Animalia, you, you think he could help <laughs> us out with that? Uh, see if that's actually, if that theory holds any water whatsoever. I would actually be interested to have Sam watch this movie and tell me what he thinks Gauss is. Because I think the scene that Damon's talking about is the one where there is the traditional tropey boardroom scene, blah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Which apparently blah. Uh, Yuasa uh, hated doing because he wanted it to be about the kids, but he had to throw that in there. So Yeah, of course, because that was a trope of monster movies at the time. And then they throw like the little they they throw the the half done up drawing of Gauss up there and yada yada yada. And I I don't know. I, I would be. I would honestly be interested to see what Sam would have to say, since he is an ecologist. He's not a biologist. He's no, not a he's zoologist. He's, he's an ecologist. The ecologist. Then they also have a virologist. Yes. And they also have a veterinarian. Okay. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, Sam Perrin at the Cinematic Animalia podcast. But I'd be interested to see what he would have to say about this. Yeah, film. I would be very curious because I will say the fact that they give that explanation is one of the excuses that they're able to give for why Gauss's neck doesn't really move because that's a shortcoming of the suit. 
It's kind of like uh, Michael yeah. Keaton's Batman. Michael- you know, the mask was the exact same piece as the shoulder piece, so he had to move his shoulders and his head at the same time, so it kind of became this look. They kind of embrace that as the style. It's the mm-hmm. Batman turn, basically. So, yeah. <laughs> Which is funny, because I've seen Gauch shirts that are stylized to look like 1966 Batman, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, interesting that you bring up Batman. I actually have a, an observation about that. Gauss has that convenient, so convenient fire-canceling dust that comes out of his <laughs> nippleage area. I was going to say, Michael, <laughs> it's a good thing Travis isn't here. I know. Do we, have to talk I know. About, <laughs> do we have to talk about gassy Gauss nipples now? <laughs> yes, Gauss nipples. Not just Gauss nipples, but fire-canceling dust that specifically targets what Gamera does. I mean, that's a Batman trope. It's like, oh, I'll just reach into my convenient utility belt well, here and okay. pull out anti-shark spray. Okay, no, okay. He's Half- a Mary Sue. Gauss is a Mary Sue and, and <laughs> no, should not be allowed. No, no, no. <laughs> I have spoken with the scientists here because let me tell you, we do have Gauss on the island, and once a month we have to ship in some of that artificial blood to keep him happy. We don't want him eating people. So, or she, it depends on which one, because we have a couple of them, because, you know, whatever. But they have told me that keep in mind, someone's brought that up, and they said, no, Gauss does not like fire. This is something that was developed so he could get rid of one of the things that can kill him easily. Apparently, Here. you can evolve fire extinguishers. I don't know how, but apparently... Well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. I'll give you that, that he's evolved this. Now, let's go on to a further point in that he actually extinguishes, near the end of the movie, when the electrical substation catches fire, he puts out the fire with his convenient plot device, fire suppression powder, patent pending. <laughs> I mean, who is the hero kaiju? Oh, apparently Jimmy's going to patent that. So <laughs> You go right ahead. I give you free reign to do that. But that makes him a hero. I mean, that was a pretty heroic act. Because that substation would have just kept going. Yeah, he, well, he was he doing it to save his own. On his own, said, "Look, I don't want this fire here. You don't want this fire here. I'm just going to go ahead and put this out." Okay, okay. So, <laughs> so, so, quick, quick question for Jimmy: Does that mean that Mechanic Kong will now develop fire retardant nipples? <laughs> <laughs> oh, not in the nipples, but somewhere. Yes. <laughs> oh, it's getting risque in here. Okay. All right. Why? Well, I thought that's where you put the fire hose. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jimmy, calm down. Okay, I understand. Mechanicong Mark II is not anatomically correct. We, we've been through this, all right? <laughs> well, that's sexist. <laughs> wow. Okay, before my intrepid producer murders you, we're going to move on. <laughs> we're still talking about Gauss, right? Do we want to talk about Operation Whirly Bird? The brilliant solution that this child comes up with, but apparently the adults concocted. You know, they named this thing. Operation and, Whirly Bird. Really? Is this the best idea? That they, the Really the best? That's uh, yeah, exactly this what is their said. solution. I mean, After everything else, their solution to the problem is a giant vat of artificial blood and a merry-go-round that apparently Gauss is too stupid to jump off of. And I know everybody and their dog who's come to the island has made this joke, but every time I see that scene in this movie, all I keep thinking is, you spin me right round, round, baby, baby, right right round, round, like a a Gauss, baby, baby, right right round, round, round. round. Yeah, basically. Okay, now, here's another point I want to make about this. Okay, you've got this plan, you've got this other thing, you've somehow inferred that he wants blood. Now, in order to fill that vat 
and to have that atomizing spray over there. Japan's national blood reserve must have been just tanked. There's no way they had enough blood well, for any kind of accident. Well, they said they person. said it was artificial blood. It wasn't real blood. We did not get that in the translation. Apparently, uh, apparently not. But in the in the Japanese, it said it's artificial blood, which I looked up. Apparently, that is a thing that's in development. So okay, okay, because otherwise, I was going to say, wow. Way to tank your own society by catering to this monster just so you can make it dizzy. Yeah, apparently the solution to the problem is to make him a very dizzy glutton. That's what they did. They, <laughs> you know, but why not put a sedative in the blood or, better yet, a poison? <laughs> well, it's because Aichi didn't tell him to do that because he wanted Gamera to take care of the problem. That's what you of do. Of course he did because he's the Sarazawa of this, you know, let them fight. <laughs> Exactly. But let me tell you, Gauss and Gamera to this day still don't get along. And this is interesting. Ooh, uh, John LeMay actually pointed this out in one of his books. Gamera, unlike Godzilla, never fights another monster twice, except for Gauss. Yep. He knows how to put him down. He does. <laughs> so, so what do you guys think of Gauss as Gamera's arch nemesis. You know, does he come anywhere close to being a Ghidorah? Or, or does Godzilla win in the rogues gallery department? Honestly, completely unbiased. Godzilla does win in the rogues. It does win with the rogues. Ga rogues? There we go. The rogues gallery uh, as far as the most challenging opponents. Because, look, you know, Godzilla has had his own sh fair share of rivals like King Ghidorah uh, or King Ghidra, however you want to say it. Mechagodzilla. Mothra in some cases, and all of them are more effective villains than Gauss, in my I opinion. I have to concur with that assessment. I think that Godzilla definitely wins on the supervillain count. At least Gauss in terms of the arch nemesis, because let's be honest, Gamera has fought some pretty wild opponents. But for an arch nemesis, for a supervillain, like a Joker to his Batman, Gauss is, is okay, but it, it wasn't until the Heisei series where you have flocks of them, and he's mm -hmm. actually challenged at that point. Right. I think one-on-one, -on -one, not a problem. He takes him out easily. It's the flocks in the, the Heisei trilogy that actually, I mean, that, that last scene at the end of the third movie has Yeah. Uh, let me tell you, flock. I can't, like, Fall can't get here soon enough for me. And, you know, the thing that Gauss kind of has going for it, and it's specifically for the Heisei trilogy, is sort of the whole thing is built around the relationship between Gamera and Gauss, the exactly. Heisei trilogy. So that just gives Gauss more weight. Now, in speaking of terms as like a one-off nemesis, if Gauss was just a one-and-done kind of character, I don't know if I could give him the same praise or her the same praise as, say, a King Ghidorah or another kaiju like that. I just think, in my opinion, Gauss is just kind of lackluster in so that do department. You do you think Gauss acquired that status because we had Space Gauss and Giron, and because this movie itself was really popular, and it's not necessarily because he's the best opponent for Gamera. I think this movie was in the right place at the right time, and that is what makes Gauss such an iconic villain to Gamera. I have to agree that it's time and place, because I mm. think, this is my personal opinion, and it's from when I was a child watching all of these on Saturday morning, Jiger did more damage to Gamera, took him out quicker with that tail spike and implanted an actual egg mm -hmm. into Gamera. Okay, it's disgusting, it's horrible, but remember, this is Daie, they are doing gruesome and gross. 
And I think that was a more deadly uh, opponent at the time. It just, it was weird. The World's Fair was going on. It was the wrong time. This is 67. This is the glut. And so they're going to take go with whichever one stood out the most. And, and either fortunately or unfortunately, it was Giaus. Yeah, basically. I will say, though, I had this funny little observation, and I don't remember if this came back in the later movies, but they kept talking about how when Gauss gets exposed to sunlight that his head turns red. And I wrote, Gauss is a redhead at sunrise? Of course! He's a vampire! He has no soul! I thought you were going to say redheaded stepchild, but okay. Um... <laughs> I, I was anticipating that, too. I was wondering why you didn't was, do it. Uh, yeah, but no, I'm glad you said that because as we were kind of talking about whether or not Gauss is a bird or if, if he's a pterosaur or some kind of bird or a bat, I did start thinking about that scene where in the, well, the water scene where the sun is coming up and Gauss retreats. And so that lends itself more to being a bat than a yeah. bird. Because, yeah, because you know, he's supposed to be nocturnal. Yeah. And the only bird that I can think of offhand, anyway, that is nocturnal would be an owl. And he not, definitely does not, not look like Always, an owl. though. Owls are not even nocturnal all the time. Like, I've seen owls in the daylight mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because it's not sunlight itself that kills him. It's ultraviolet radiation. Mm -hmm. It dehydrates the cells. And one thing that Joel and the bots did say that I thought was hilarious was, oh, he's going to be prematurely aged to death. <laughs> Well, you know, you know, it does produce that nice leathery tan you got. So Yeah, well, and then the funny thing was is that they started telling everybody in the nearby cities, turn on all your lights. Good God, I don't want to see the electrical bills after this. But <laughs> Well, isn't, uh, well, if I'm not thing, mistaken, when the piece of the Gauss foot is broken off in the water, doesn't it shrink in the sunlight too, if I'm does. not mistaken? Yes, because the guys who noticed it first, it was huge, and he brings the authorities and he says, oh, it's much smaller now. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, but it just shrivels, it dehydrates. And, mm -hmm. you know, sitting in water, you'd think that that would keep it hydrated, but apparently not. Apparently not. Most of it ex is exposed to the sunlight anyway. Exactly, so. yes. Yeah. But no, and then so the they started trying to do the thing with the lights. And I, you know, it's kind of weird. And it, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I was kind of thinking, you know, this is basically the inverse of what they had to do during World War II in order to keep cities from being firebombed, which was turn off all the lights. They did all these blackouts. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you know, that might have at least subconsciously had been where that idea came from and then just reversing it. Because most of the people who would, be, would have been working on this were probably war veterans. So Maybe because blackouts were a huge part of Godra and raids again. Also. This is true. Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. is true. And, I mean, even from Varan, where he is attracted to lights, mm -hmm. specifically like the flares, because he would eat them and that's how they yeah. killed him. Yeah. Same thing, you know, here is the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. And competing movie studios that can always take the ideas, go, oh, I'm going to do the opposite of that and see if that works. Yeah. But I can also tell you, Gauss is probably what ate up most of this movie's budget. I would love to know how much 60 million yen was in American dollars at the time. That might be a little project for you, Jimmy. But according to John LeMay, the optical effect for the sonic beam that Gauss makes, that was expensive. And I wish I had counted how many times he used it because I could have told you exactly how much of the movie's budget it ate up because according to John LeMay, every time he used that, it cost $1,000 to animate it. 
Yeah, Ooh, every time he did... on, on this actual film cell, from what I understand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. every time he he would shoot it, all I kept saying was money, 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 money. <laughs> Although I have I have to bring up one of the best special effects due to that. Now it wasn't the beam itself. It was the cutting the car in half while it's moving. Oh yes. It was, yes. Which was Christine, actually was a humorous wonder. moment. That's the thing. This movie is a wow. This movie's tone is a little bit all over the place because there's some really, because it's super gory and they have artificial blood and people are getting well, it's, eaten it's and slapstick. all that. But then it's they do. Yeah. slapstick a little bit too. Yeah, but well, then they, they do the slapstick moments with the. flying worker when Gauss is yeah. creating wind that, where he just floats up. And then comes down. It's like, yeah. Okay. If, if Gauss is making wind that can move tanks, nothing should have been standing up at that point. So does this mean that we're not supposed to be near Gauss when he's breaking wind? Is is that where oh. is that where we're going with this? Okay. That was that was so bad. You're getting both. I'm sorry. Because it was funny at first, and then I realized no. <laughs> oh, oh come on! Everyone loves a good fart joke, Nathan. Come on, get get a grip. <sighs> you just better be glad that that is one of the of George Carlin's seven words that got demoted so much children can say it and not get in trouble now. Got, what? Fart? Better, yes, fart. It's allowed. Oh. Got a better one for you, though. If, if you like puns, there was an actual dubbed line. They're flying the jets over the crater where Gauss is, and he's shooting them down one by one. And one of the guys says, that's just plain murder. <laughs> one of my favorite line readings in the entire movie i wish i could have watched it with you guys oh my gosh it's such oh, torture but in all seriousness though the special effects used to simulate the cutting of whatever object that gauss was firing at was really well done it's really interesting to see the contrast between Gauss's and it's it sounds probably really trivial to a lot of people listening to this, but it's like the contrast between Gauss's beam and the very, very, very practical effect of the literal torch in Gamera's mouth. Yeah, which, which was, thankfully yeah. they were did a much better job hiding the nozzle this time in his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> whatever do you mean nathan they did a fantastic job of hiding the nozzle That's in the last I mean. two did. films I, what are you talking sarcasm. about that Please wasn't sarcasm elucidate. they did educate us <laughs> i'm just saying <laughs> they did a really good job that wasn't sarcasm <laughs> they also didn't but, linger on his face as much when he was breathing fire so that well yeah have, and, but helped. and they tried to hide the fact that the head in that suit is just staring up at the sky most of the time making gamera look like he's high <laughs> okay well, maybe, maybe he, he was. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> maybe wait, he wait, was. Wait. Maybe so, that. Maybe that's the real reason he's a friend to all children. He's an enabler. So what you're saying is, while he was fighting Gauss and breathing fire on him, he was lit. <sighs> well, you know, when you eat those spicy I'll, I'll, habanero peppers, it's got to come out somewhere. It's true. It can either come out the front or the back. And, you know. Nope. Well, with Gamera, it's both. I mean, how else can he fly? <laughs> I mean, uh, did you not read Roger Ebert's review of Guardian of the Universe? He basically yeah. said Gamera flies by igniting his flatulence. I'm just saying. Well, I was trying to think of what the drawing looked like in the Arrow set, the posters oh, that came with the Gamera mm -hmm. inside the book where they broke down the anatomy of each kaiju. I think Gamera has two combustion sacks, I think it's what they call them in the book, that makes the fire out of his butthole. Can I point out one other thing? This has nothing to do with what we've been talking about. I just, I found it interesting. Go for I had it. To, I had to go back and I had to look at other movies. Gamera drags Gauss up to the volcano at the end. 
and, and basically goes in with him. And <laughs> this reminded me of something, and I went and looked for it, and virtually the same scene is in 1970s Space Amoeba. Yes. Amoebas mm-hmm. drag oh, anime up into a crater, and I went, who's stealing from who now? I mean, first... Well, and I did actually call uh, uh, Kamibus, I think was his name. I called him Orantoho Gamera. So. Exactly, exactly. Uh, <laughs> You want to the notes I had about that scene? This must be another reason why Gauss is Gamera's arch nemesis, because we all know that the trope of Gamera is that he's a second round fighter. He has to get his butt kicked the first time, and then he comes back and he wins because he's like, ha ha, I know your tricks. Exactly. I think he had, good God, I don't know how many times he had a fight with Gauss in this movie. It was definitely more than two. And then we get to the end and Gamera goes for the throat, goes for the jugular like he did with Bowergon. Gauss is bleeding all over the place. No, that doesn't kill him. So he's latching onto him to restrain him. And then the sun comes out. So you think, oh, the sun's going to kill him. No, that doesn't kill him. No, it takes both of those plus getting dragged into a volcano. This tells me one of two things. One, Gauss is either one tough mother or Gamera is an uber sadist. I'm just saying. <laughs> So are you saying that Gamera is the Marquis de Sade of Kaiju? Possibly. Okay. Well, he does seem to get hurt an awful lot. And when he first encounters the monster, it's almost like he allows himself to get hurt. He wants to feel that pain and then go lick his wounds and say, oh, now I'm going to visit pain on the monster. And we'll see how that goes. (laughs) So he's a sadomasochist. Indeed. Uh, I I don't think Gamera is going to appreciate us saying these things about him. He might be listening. As far as I know, Jimmy is broadcasting this out to the monsters with the orca, which might make it sound a little weird, but... mm. Well, Gamera, we mean no disrespect. We're just noticing certain patterns in your behavior, and if you ever need to talk, I'm here for you. Yes, yeah. You need to be nice to the king of the monsters, at least the king of the monsters as dictated by the board. I'm just saying. I was going to say, who? We, which king are we talking about? Are we talking about Gamera? Are we talking about the real king of the monsters? And, and oh, they, shots really fired! Should, king really, Caesar. Oh! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's, he's, a good, he's a good boy. He is a very good boy. He let me pet him the last time I was here. I don't know if he's going to let me do that again. Jimmy told me something that he got mad because I had Cheeto dust or something. I don't know. It was a weird thing. Yeah, I'm sure. All right. We need to get to the Toku topic here pretty quick, but I'll bring up a couple of quick points related to just the movie itself. This is the first time we have a Gamera theme. It's not the Gamera theme, but it's a Gamera theme. It's not the Gamera theme. No, they changed that in, I believe it was Giron. The one that we all know and might love. <laughs> well, we uh, love it for its kitschiness. Yeah, that was then immortalized in a superior version by MST3K. That wasn't until Giron, I believe. But so, but this is the first time we have a Gamera theme. And it's sung by the children. And if I remember correctly, it was actually released on a record. So you could buy this song and put it on your record player and listen to it. Because that's what Gauss does, you know. Spin me right around, baby. <laughs> apparently gauss is a dj but he doesn't like anybody knowing that would make sense i mean he has to keep up this image of being a supervillain. yes and as we all know djs are very generous with their music and their time so mm-hmm. of course mm-hmm. does he dj on the weekends at the king caesar's palace occasionally oh. okay <laughs> All right, so uh, we've been talking a little bit about, and I should have brought this up sooner, 
But we've been talking about how one of the things that I think helps this movie is that it doesn't have an identity crisis like the first movie where they couldn't decide if it should be for grownups or kids. And it embraced being a children's movie unlike Bowergon because that was apparently the problem with Bowergon. It didn't make as much money because the kids who were taken to see the movie got bored. Well, shame on them. I blame the parents. They didn't teach their children to appreciate quality cinema. And the melodrama? I get it. But uh, <laughs> but director Yuasa was interviewed by Stuart Galbraith, which, by the way, I listened to the commentary on this movie by Stuart Galbraith, and he was really nice to it. But then if you read Stuart Galbraith's book on Japanese science fiction, fantasy, and horror movies, he says it's barely tolerable. So I guess he's mellowed out in the years since he wrote that book. Well, I think maybe he was also getting paid to do the commentary track, so it hardly pays to slam something as you're watching it. Sounds eerily familiar for me. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I, he was uh, he interviewed Yuasa at one point, and I think this very well summarizes the tone and themes of this movie, as we've been talking about, and uh, honestly, the rest of the series, most definitely. Yuasa told him, quote, When I was young... After Japan had lost the war, the adults I looked up to suddenly went from being militaristic to anti-militaristic. Because of this hypocrisy, I felt like I couldn't trust adults anymore. I hoped that when I grew up, I would, in my way, still be like a child. I think that sentiment has been seen in my movies. End quote. Hmm. Beautiful. And it must have worked in this one because I was shocked to find out about this. And it was mentioned in a couple of my sources, so I know it must be true. You know who else liked this movie, believe it or not? Pray tell. Ashiro Honda. Really? He sent a New Year's card to the screenwriter and praised this movie. Interesting. Okay. (laughs) I'm I'm trying to wrap my brain around Honda liking a Kenny And I'm also trying to think about whether or not this movie actually had influence on All Monsters Attack. Godzilla's Revenge? Yes. I wouldn't be surprised, except honestly, I think, and I know there's probably going to be a contingent of my audience who may not like this. Yes, Jimmy, I am prepared. I think Honda did it better. (gasps) Oh, no. I would say mic drop, but... uh, uh, no. I am still using it. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking, I mean, speaking as someone who had to grow up with that awful, awful dub of Godzilla's Revenge forever, and who hated this movie until the Criterion Collection came out, when actually I could see Honda's original intention and hear it in the original language, I have to say that no, I don't. <laughs> I, I really don't think so. <laughs> I'm wondering, though, because I'm glad we're talking a little bit about Godzilla's Revenge, and I know it's just, well, this I mean, is not what the episode's about. It's not just about, Godzilla's but... Revenge, but the 70s Godzilla movies, I was noticing they were copying a lot of things from Gamera. They were putting in more gore. They were having the right. kid characters yes. more often, and they were standing on the sidelines and cheering their hero monster or something like that, which is exactly what Aichi was doing in this. Right. Yes. Right. The point that I was going to make, and I lost it, was about reevaluating these films. 
like reevaluating some of these monsters these, versus men has been a big advocate of that. Right. Because I know a lot of people have been trying to advocate, uh, they, a lot of people have been advocating for a re a reevaluation of some of these, of like Godzilla's revenge. And we've seen guys like monsters versus men do the series on Gamera where they go back and reevaluate some of the old show. Gamera films and realize that they're not that bad. And I'm actually in kind of agreement with them. Like they're not as bad as people want to make them out to be. They're not like Gamera versus Gauss is a fine monster movie. It got the Gamera formula right. I just wish that they would have been able to keep the formula right, or at least been able to recycle it in a way that just did not annoy everyone well, if so. they could have done variations on a theme you know right like keep the formula but tweak it a little bit here and there they did start to do that by putting an american actor and a kenny together but it wasn't enough though uh, it wasn't it, enough and it, it was it still came out there now they're twice as annoying and so you know it's like and uh, also calm down jimmy okay <laughs> i know one of them is about a very eventful chapter of your life calm down <laughs> Just because Jimmy's offended, it doesn't negate the fact that the movie he participated in as a child is still pretty damn annoying. Okay, okay, I get it. He wasn't the actor in the movie. That kid played him. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. So it's a, it's an interpretation. Ah, yes. That explains so much. Okay. We're sorry, I, Jimmy. We're sorry. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm very to, sorry. To go like, back was, to what you guys were saying, I can tell you when they got this formula right. It's called Gamera the Brave. <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. It's because Gamera the Brave takes all of what made Showa Gamera Showa Gamera and updated it in a way that was not annoying. Full disclosure, I used to hate Gamera the Brave. That's honestly. because you had no heart. I know, I know, I'm an evil, smarmy, but... um of this generation, that's all. It's true, but I'm just so cynical. I'm sorry, guys. But honestly, I used to hate Gamera the Brave. And then I went back and I watched some of these old Showa Gamera films, and I fell in love with some of them, including Gamera vs. Gauss. Gamera vs. Gauss is actually my favorite Showa Gamera film. You're not alone in that. That's uh, it's either this or Baurugan is what I usually yeah, see. Yeah, yeah, Baurugan was interesting, but for what Gamera was supposed to be, I think Gamera versus Gauss is the perfect Showa Gamera film. So you know, going back and watching through the Arrow set and giving these films a real chance, not just I hate to be that guy, but saying like what the kids do today, but they don't really watch the movie. Okay, they boomer. sit there and text on their phones while the movie's playing. They don't really pay attention. So I went back and I watched these films. I paid attention to these films and I paid, I paid attention to the themes in these films and I got to really appreciate what Daye was trying to accomplish. Now, the part that breaks my heart is that they got a lot of stuff right, but they got a ton of stuff wrong, mm. in my opinion. And then you fast forward to Gamera the Brave and it's like a breath of fresh air. For someone who loves Showa Gamera, you have to love Gamera the Brave. And if you don't love Gamera the Brave, I have to agree with Nathan. I know. Like, it's one of those situations where I'm kicking myself because I have to agree with Nathan. Um, <laughs> you have no heart if you don't like Gamera the Brave. And it's able to stand by itself as a wonderful addition to this franchise. And it, it's honestly what the Showa Gamera series was supposed to be. Unfortunately, they were limited by technology, budget, and just enthusiasm for the franchise. Well, and also I think because it was spearheaded by Yuasa, who grew up distrusting adults and wanted to maintain a child-likeness as an mm -hmm. adult, which honestly I, I don't mind, but I think 
when that translates into making the kid the smartest person in the room and smarter than the adults and be able to tell the adults what to do. I, it's, I, yeah. I think you that's going a little too far, which is yeah. why I like the kid in Gamera the Brave because he feels I mean, like a real kid. Barring all the blood and the gore and all that stuff that's in the Gamera films, there is a level of wholesomeness to them mm-hmm. that I think was missing at that time in a lot of Showa era monster movies where it was just big monster attack city, people run, scream, ah, you know, that kind of stuff. And nuclear themes, uh, you know, that kind of stuff too. And there's a unique wholesomeness to the Showa Gamera series that I think is underappreciated. We well, can yeah. see when Honda tried to do that with Godzilla's Revenge. True. He, he did try to bring in that wholesomeness, but he was also, he can't get away from it. There's a social message to his mm-hmm. movie, and that was latchkey kids, and that was the, yeah. the horribleness of having both parents having to work just to sustain your, the family. Do you think these films would have been more successful if they had more of a social message to I, them? Well, as it is, I don't think there is a social message. Well, there's not. That's why yeah. I'm asking you. Uh, well, do you think, that, do you think they would have been oh, more successful? What are you guys talking about? You are, you are about to get educated in the next segment, let me tell you. <laughs> But uh, uh, if you think there's no social message in this one, okay, maybe not the first movie. Well, I might actually. I, I let me. Barugan has that. a social. I'm message. not it sure about- if after this there's any social messages. Yeah. But there's definitely one in this. Also, just wanted to throw this out there. If you're saying that all of the Showa Gamma movies need to be reevaluated, I have three words for you. Don't say it. Gamma super monster. Damn it, Nathan. It's your favorite, isn't it? <laughs> it's so my favorite. Oh my oh my god. Is I it, love is it, it so. the pinnacle of Trash Mountain? It is no, it's not no, quite the pinnacle of Trash not. Mountain. No, no, it is no. not. No, no. <laughs> no, that's the no. no. The, the pinnacle the pinnacle of Trash Mountain is a cold, lonely, and weird place. <laughs> I don't want to go back to ever, ever again unless I've been drinking. Oh, all day. God help me if the board ever mandates that I have to cover the top of Trash Mountain. <sighs> anyway. Well, I do, I do have to fly home with a member of the board, so I can bring it up in conversation if you like, Nathan. We can't be friends anymore. Anyway, <laughs> uh, with that, we're going to move on to that educational segment. Hey there, audio listener, Michael here. Nathan and Jimmy were gracious enough to let me interrupt today's episode and invite you to listen to my show, The Kaiju Groupie Podcast. During each episode, I'll be sitting down with kaiju and tokusatsu fans just like you to discuss a wide range of topics from around the fandom. Who knows, I may even have Jimmy come on to discuss his love of gangster rap and find out how the heck he survived the war in space. No, Kenny, I said Jimmy, as in Jimmy from NASA. Besides, I fired you, remember? Anyway, my show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you find your favorite giant monster podcasts. A link to an episode will be in today's show notes. So until then, I'm Michael, the Kaiju Groupie, letting you get back to your normally scheduled program. Michael, you must have a very confused assistant because that definitely did not sound like our favorite psychotic child who loves Gamera. And Jet has told me on numerous occasions that his name has never been and never will be Kenny. 
Well, you know, Nathan, I ran into a little bit of an issue when I was recording in my studio back at Outpost 304, and this robot just kind of walked into my office. He kind of looked like Jet, but it wasn't really Jet. And I thought at first that Jimmy, your Jimmy, was trying to play a joke on me. So I just called him Kenny just to be funny, and it just kind of stuck. Well, sounds like Kennybot might be <laughs> a really amusing to meet sometime. Is he still around? No. Last I heard, he was somewhere in Los Angeles pursuing an acting career. I don't know exactly what's happened with him now. I think he's addicted to heroin. I have no clue, though. Ah, well, I didn't the know good robots thing is, could become addicted to heroin. COVID, so he can probably find some decent work. Probably. It's true. Probably. Okay, so... As I mentioned, we're moving into what apparently will be a very educational segment for all y'all. Can I can say that because I'm from Indiana. Uh, you're, uh, I mean, I can say y'all because I'm from the South, but you're not quite there. <laughs> you clearly have not spent enough time in the Midwest. But as I said, there actually is a social message in this movie. In fact, there was... A lot of things going on when this movie was in production that I have no doubt factored into the writing of this script. And now I have to give credit where credit is due. Matt and Bird over at the Kaiju Transmissions podcast did a presentation on Gauss for its 60th, no, its 50th anniversary, I should say, at G-Fest in 2017. And I listened to their recording of that presentation and it may, it was the first place that made me aware of this. Now, they didn't use this term for it, because this is the actual term for it, but it is the Sanrizuka struggle, which had to do with the construction of the Narita Airport. Have you guys ever heard of this? Uh, no, not outside of this podcast. And yes, because you gave me a heads up. Unfortunately, you gave me the heads up at the Haneda. Yeah, that was on me. I'm sorry. <laughs> but when you when you corrected yourself, I did look it up and I did read about it and I found it fascinating because it's not just in this movie. It's also in Ultraman of the same time period. Mm -hmm. It's in a variety of other movies in Japan. In fact, a lot of Japanese movies have this conflict between individual rights of villages and whatnot and construction coming through. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and I mm -hmm. found it fascinating. Mm -hmm. And what makes it interesting, and Goldbraith brought this up in the commentary, he said that Yuasa actually said, looking back on this movie, he said it's funny because he said if this movie had been made now, it would have been reversed because the villagers are presented in this movie because... In this, there are villagers near the mountain where Gauss is, and there is a company trying to build a freeway. Because at this point, Japan was expanding quite a bit. This is the middle of, well, not the middle, but the beginning of the Japanese economic miracle. They needed to build more infrastructure. So the idea that there's this company building a new road makes a lot of sense. And the villagers are trying to keep the company from constructing anything. And it's because they're trying to get the construction company to give them more money for their land. So hmm. their leader even says that Gauss appearing is punishment from the gods for their greed. So the villagers are meant to be the villains in this and the construction company are the good guys, but Yuasa said if this was made now, it would have been reversed. <laughs> it probably would have. So this was a very mainstream movie because the Japanese press was not kind to the people who were protesting the construction of the Narita Airport. They were presenting them as anti-progressive hicks. <laughs> huh. Interesting. 
Yeah, it was nasty. So, like I said, this is very much in line with the mainstream of Japanese culture at the time. And it makes sense because Japan was quickly modernizing itself at that time. They had just had the Olympics, and that allowed them to kind of reintroduce themselves to the world at that point and put away some of the last vestiges of the war. I see a lot of, of similarities. You say that the progress had much more public support. Mm-hmm. And we had something here in the Pacific Northwest, here in Oregon specifically, with logging in the 1990s was being held up because of the spotted owl. Mm-hmm. Its habitat is very small and those was on an endangered list and it was being stymied at every level. So these loggers could not go in and do anything. And public sentiment in Oregon was weird. You'd have the college student types who were all for protecting the species and they were just shouted down and looked down on everybody else in Oregon was very much on the side of the loggers because these are humans. They need jobs. This is right. mm-hmm. got to support their families. And so the similarities were very, very, very clear for me. And having lived through that, I can understand kind of what's going on. In mm-hmm. And I saw it right away. I went, oh, I've been here. Yes. And I will tell you that even though the media was presenting these protesters as being these backward hicks, I think, honestly, looking into this, the issue is a lot more complicated than I think anyone at the time really wanted to admit. Uh, There's a lot of things that goes into it, let me tell you. And you're right. And the thing is, is this was not an isolated incident, as you may have heard in my previous podcast life. There were a lot of protests going on at this time in Japan over a lot of different things. And much like in the United States with the youth movements against the Vietnam War, there were a lot of youth movements against things like this issue and other things in Japan at the time. So it was just a thing that was going on all over the world at that point. The 60s was definitely a tumultuous time in world history, let me tell you. I had an ironic... A piece because I'm looking at this from our perspective, and I watched the movie from our perspective. Mm-hmm. I had a, a quote that just popped into my head from Malcolm X again, 60s, who said, "Show me a capitalist, and I'll show you a bloodsucker." Mm-hmm. And I thought how appropriate it was that we're dealing with Gauss, who feeds on blood. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Business owners are pushing construction; they're the capitalists, and they equal the giant blood-sucking. Except in the case of this movie, they're the good guys. Exactly. So the analogy is skewed. I know. But analogies always break down if you take them too far. Exactly. The San Rizuka struggle was a civil conflict between the Japanese government and the agricultural community of San Rizuka in the Chiba prefecture, which opposed the construction of the Narita Airport, as I was saying. Although at this time, the airport was being called the New Tokyo International Airport because Haneda was Tokyo International Airport at that point. And this whole thing got started around 1966, so about a year before this movie was made. It was organized and led by the, and I hope I say this right, I have the English translation of this, although I saw a slightly different translation of this in some of my other sources, but the Sanrizuka Shibayama United Opposition League, although I've also saw it called the Opposition Union, but I went with League for most of my notes, against the construction of the Narita Airport. So it's this really long name in Japanese which was comprised of farmers, local residents, and leftist groups, including the Japanese Communist Party, Hello Takeshi Kimura, (laughs) and the Social Democratic Party. This group radicalized and delayed the opening of the airport. And we'll get into that in a little more detail here as we go. At its height, 
17,500 people, although I saw another number that actually went up to 22,000, mobilized at a rally, and riot police responded to these protests several times. There were deaths on both sides, and you may have heard the term imminent domain. The Because in the United States, that's a policy, but the so if the government wants land and it's owned by a private citizen, they have to pay them for it. But in Japan, they just have to convince you to give it up. And that will take a really long time. <laughs> Some who participated did it not because they were necessarily true believers in the cause, but because they didn't want to be ostracized, which makes sense, especially if you understand Japanese culture. So give a little background on this whole thing, because there's a lot going on with this issue. The Chiba Prefecture had been farmland since around 700 AD when the Japanese emperor ordered the creation of horse and cattle pastures. But Edo-era magistrate's jurisdiction didn't reach the Kosan, or Old Villages, which bred a defiant streak in the residents. Then in the early 20th century, the Imperial Household Agency claimed the area as their farmlands, naming it the Goryo Farm, and they visited frequently. The place became emotionally and economically vital to locals and contributed to the opposition to the construction of Narita. As Katsuhiko Fukuda said, quote, hearing that the Goryo farm would disappear as a result of the construction made everyone around here go crazy, end quote. Much of the land was sold in 1923 and settled on by former samurai, servants of samurai, and others, because you got to understand at this point, the samurai didn't even exist anymore. That had been done away with with the Meiji Restoration. More land was then sold in 1946 after Japan was defeated in World War II. The land was settled by what were called Shinkyumen, or the new poor, who worked the land wearing straw hats, and they didn't even have electricity or running water. And as you would expect, with all of those factors, the people living there were quite attached to the land. Now, we've talked a little bit about Haneda Airport. Sorry, Damon. (laughs) But also, to give a little bit of background, Haneda Airport opened in 1931, and it was, and remains, Japan's main air travel hub. Yes, Jimmy, I know you've taken all of the vehicles in your garage there a time or two. I'm sure you've probably had to go through there as you're bringing guests over for the show. But as Japan's economy grew in the 1960s, and I mentioned this already, demand for air travel increased. Haneda Airport was expected to reach capacity by 1970 and couldn't be expanded. There was also concern about pollution and noise with jets becoming more common at this point. So the Ikeda administration, Ikeda was the prime minister at the time, looked into building a new airport in 1962. In November 1965, the Esaku Sato cabinet, so the next prime minister, made an informal decision to build the airport in Tomisato, which was unexpectedly announced by Chief Cabinet Secretary Tomisaburo Hashimoto. This riled up already growing opposition. Can you imagine this guy just going to a press conference and making this announcement when nobody (laughs) agreed to make the announcement? Oh, geez. He's got off the reservation. Repeat, he's got off the reservation. Indeed. This was only the first time that happened, let me tell you. Here we go. In 1966, the Sato cabinet negotiated secretly with transport vice minister Tokuji Wakasa, Chiba prefectural mayor Takito Tomono, 
and Liberal Democratic Party, or LDP, Vice President Shojiro Kawashima, my apologies to all of my Japanese listeners if I butchered those names, to move the construction site to the Goryeo Farm to minimize private land acquisition. And they believed it would be possible with adequate compensation to local farmers. However, the Ministry of Transport thought the Tomisito plan was the agreed-upon plan and the San Rizuka was a backup. This is actually outside the Narita city limits, by the way, you know, San Rizuka, even though they call it Narita Airport. As such, on June 22nd, 1966, Transport Minister Torata Nakamura said in a press conference, quote, there is nowhere for the airport but Tomisita slash Yachimata, end quote. The next day, Prime Minister Sato and Mayor Tomono went on TV to explain things. Again, <laughs> some miscommunications here. The decision was coordinated with prefectural officials, but not local residents, so opposition flared up in Sanrizuka like it did in Tomisato. Aggravating matters, another cabinet decision was made July 4th to acquire more private land because Goryeo Farm would be less than 40% of what was needed for the airport. So they didn't have to worry about Goryeo Farm because that was owned by the government already. Construction would be done in two phases, the first to be completed in 1971 and the second in 1973. Spoiler warning, that didn't pan out. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of a little bit of an aside in my notes, but interestingly, I found the league's flag online and it looks like the Olympic logo except with white circles and a red background and it only has three circles. But where are the other circles? I don't know. (laughs) Could they not afford the other circles? Apparently not. I mean, it's just circles. By the way, the league was formed in July or August of 1966. I don't know why no one really knows for sure when it was formed. They just say July or August. Okay. Was this league made up of extraordinary gentlemen? Yes, and none of them were William H. George III. Moving on. The government was able to acquire land from owners for social or financial reasons, but the league pushed back by buying plots of land. This is going to get a little bit entertaining here, you know, just the constant back and forth, let me tell you. Mayor Tomono intended to have on-site investigations, which led to sit-ins and petitions. The League made appeals to the LDP, or the Liberal Democratic Party, who were popular with the protesters, but they still supported building the airport, as in the LDP still supported building the airport. Fight force with force became their motto, which scared off support from mainstream politicians. (laughs) The League also believed that the airport... Yeah, here's what I was trying to get. This is another part of their motivation. This is a little bit wild, but probably not too far out of the realm of possibility. Maybe? I don't know. The League also believed that the orbit would be used as an airbase by the U.S. in their Cold War operations against the Soviet Union. <laughs> Why are we laughing at that? That sounds really horrible, Nathan. Yeah, I'm a terrible person, I know. <laughs> don't agree with him, Jimmy. <laughs> or rather, don't agree with me on that statement. <laughs> Anyway, on October 10th of 1966... My birthday. Uh, really? I said October, not December, you goofball. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> Besides, do you really want your birthday to be marked by 1,500 riot police protecting the airport corporation members from protesters as the members try to install surveying lines and then the protesters blocked the roads and had to be removed on trumped-up traffic violations? 
I mean, it's not ideal, but at least it's memorable. Yeah. yeah, at least people won't forget it. Unlike some people who forgot my birthday this year. <clears throat> what Jimmy? are you talking about? I remember. Oh, wait. Wait. Did I? I don't remember anymore. <laughs> You're fired. You can't fire me. <laughs> I will hide behind the shield that is my contract. <laughs> anyway, in 1967, so the year this movie was released, the League sought support from other groups, regardless of political affiliation, most notably from students protesting the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty, which, I as I mentioned, I discussed in my previous podcast life. And here's a little quotation from Wikipedia about all of this. Quote, Supported by various left-wing groups, the Union held sit-ins, seized and destroyed surveying equipment from airport corporation employees, erected barricades, threw stones, and harassed airport affiliates. End quote. Yes, but did they provide snacks? <laughs> Probably only for each other, I'm guessing. Okay. However, the League began to fracture, now this should have brought more snacks, over their connections to left-wing groups, breeding antagonism, and causing splits. That was 1967 when things really started flaring up, and they only intensified over the next few years. Oh, remember, now we're finally getting to the good stuff. Okay, yes, let's get Because remember, the first phase of the construction was supposed to be finished in 1971. So, April to July 1968, protesters damaged houses and fields on the property that were surveyed by the airport corporation. Oh, does that sound like today's movie? Maybe a little bit, because the villagers said, hey, we should go trash the place so not we can get all. more money. Not at all. I don't, I'm, not I, seeing a, I'm not seeing a connection. I, I'm not seeing it either. Yeah. Like, I don't know where you're getting this from. No. That's unfortunate for you. Anyway, August 18th, 1969, the youth division of the league destroyed the assembly hall of Goryeo Farm during its closing ceremony. This put their leader on Japan's most wanted list. <laughs> In November, the league's leader, Isaku Tomura, was arrested with 13 others after occupying a road and stopping a bulldozer. With their bare hands? I don't know. <laughs> That's Superman level, you know, that is, that's, activism. That's really impressive. Like, yes. those tree huggers know how to do it right. Apparently, they hug those trees hard enough that it gave them incredible stopping powers with bulldozers. And Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then in they 19... They channeled their chi. <laughs> mm. Yes. Yes. <laughs> 1970. Moving on to the next year. 1970. The opposition, quote, through raw sewage, Clara Pickman... Oh. Chloropicrin, I hope I said that right, and stones, and fought with sickles and bamboo spears, end quote, during an on-site survey of unpurchased land. They also built catapults and forts and bunkers. They even built a fortress, uh, that's how it was described, a fortress using 100 million yen in donations. That was more than the budget of this movie. That's impressive. That's very impressive. Yeah. And they fought the police using Molotov cocktails and, okay, this is just funny to me. Their other weapon of choice, apparently, to fight the cops was pachinko ball slingshots. Wow. They were a resourceful bunch, I gotta I say. I just looked up chloropictin or picrin. Yeah. It was manufactured for use as poison gas in World War One. Oh, is that mustard gas? In agriculture, chloropicrin is injected into soil prior to planting crops in order to fumigate the soil. Hot. It affects a broad spectrum of fungi, microbes, and insects. Yeah. And was used in World War One as a form of bio chemical, chemical warfare. warfare. Yeah. So 
wow, these were some hardcore protesters. Yes, definitely. So the Japanese government decided to evict the residents, which is legal in Japanese law. And this led to a clash with construction workers. Again, sounds a little bit like today's movie and riot police in February 1971. A second clash happened in September where three riot police officers were killed. And this is known as the Toho Jujiro incident. An elderly woman named Yone Koizumi was forcibly removed from her home before it was demolished, and this became a symbol of the government throwing lives into turmoil and fueled continued opposition. In October, Fumio Sanomiya, a central member of the youth division, and this is very tragic, so I'm not going to laugh at this one, he hanged himself. His suicide note said, quote, I detest those who brought the airport to this land, end quote, and, quote, I have lost the will to keep fighting, end quote. 1972, the league delayed the airport's opening by constructing a 200-foot tower to disrupt flight tests, and they halted the construction of a jet fuel pipeline from the port of Chiba. Their membership was dwindling thanks to many arrests, dropping from 320 households to 45 and to 23 by 1976. But around this time, a league leader, this is interesting, ran for office in the Diet on a Narita Airport opposition platform, but he failed to win despite getting 330,000 votes. They also, they, as in the league, also committed arson on a Keisei Skyliner train to sabotage transport to Narita. And interestingly, I've never heard of this, but apparently there is a movie from 1979 called Days of Fury that was directed by Fred Warshawski and hosted by Vincent Price that actually has footage of some of this stuff in it. Really? Mm-hmm. I'm guessing it's a documentary. In 1977, the Takeo Fukuda cabinet, so the next prime minister, announced that the airport would open within a year. Keep in mind, it was supposed to be 1973. And then this is when they had the big gathering of protesters that one source said 17,500, another one said 22. They mobilized in a rally against the opening of the airport. That May, 2,100 riot police seized control of the aforementioned tower, when I said that they built to disrupt flight tests, and it was demolished. During the conflict, one protester was hit in the head with a tear gas bomb and died several days later. The protesters retaliated with another attack, killing a police officer. The airport was scheduled to open March 30th, 1978. And okay, I got to admit, this part of the story, I want to know if this ever got made into a movie because this would be an interesting movie. But the airport was scheduled to open March 30th, 1978, but left-wing groups occupied the control tower March 26th, destroying equipment and facilities. They did so by ramming two trucks filled with waste oil through the entrances and sending a quote-unquote red helmet squad to infiltrate the airport overnight through sewage pipes. Hmm. And this delayed the opening of the airport until May. At that point... Remember, I mentioned the number of households in 1976. Right. By this point, only 17 households remained on unfinished second phase land with 15 belonging to the league. And as of now, or at least in the sources that I was looking at, so maybe this isn't entirely accurate anymore, but there's only five left now. Hmm. 
But even with the airport opening, that didn't stop the opposition. The league changed its slogan from certain prevention of the airport to airport abolition slash stop second phase construction. But after their leader, Tomura, died and the airport succeeded, members withdrew. One farmer lamented, quote, how easy it is to die and that, quote, they'll build the airport anyway. So they lost faith in their cause. However, splinter groups have carried out 511 guerrilla actions. That's how my source put it. Guerrilla actions against the airport between 1978 and 2017. Opposition subsided as left-wing groups fizzled out in the 1980s, and when Prime Minister Tomichi Murayama made an apology on behalf of the Japanese government to residents in 1995. The New York Times summarized this whole conflict in 1989 like this, quote, The key to the issue remains what it has always been, amazingly stiff opposition based on the seeming high-handedness in the way the government forced the airport on local landowners without consulting them, end quote. And if you ever go to Narita, Narita to this day has incredibly strict security because of all of this. Two mortar cannons, this is freaky, two mortar cannons were found in the woods near the airport in 2008. <laughs> yeah. Other international airports in Japan they learned their lessons from this. So they built on artificial islands in the middle of nowhere so they could avoid trying to acquire land from residents. <laughs> Jeez. Wow. <laughs> yeah. In the end, while Narita Airport was planned to be the largest public works project undertaken by Japan, it was only one third as large as originally envisioned thanks to all of this. Farmland and houses can be seen sandwiched between taxiways from the air. So if you ever fly over Narito, you'll be able to see this. It was planned to have five runways, but a second one wasn't built until 2002. And even then, it was 2,180 meters long when it was supposed to be 2,500. In 1989, Jeffrey Tudor, director of PR for Japan Airlines, said, quote, It's like a curse was placed on that site. It was the wrong site, and we're never going to be able to forget that, end quote. Takao Shito, one of the few remaining farmers, explained the impetus of the struggle like this, quote, I'm not in it for the money. I want to continue farming. Nothing gives me greater joy, end quote. Simple pleasures. Yes. Mm -hmm. Much like this movie, Simple Indeed. Pleasures. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so... To wrap this up, I'm going to bring up something that Matt and Bird said in Kaiju Transmissions, and I'll see what you guys think. They argued that this league, this union, would have been labeled terrorists if they were in the U.S. today. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. No hesitation. They would have. Yes, they would have probably been labeled as domestic terrorists. It's the violence and the destruction of property that yes. is pretty much what yes it is. yeah i would because have to agree with you because there. there is a stark difference between protesting and rioting and once you get into rioting and violence territory then you're dangerously close to domestic terrorism yeah except i think what makes this more complicated compared to more recent events in the united states is that the government is coming in and basically trying to force them off their land when they don't want I mean, to. That, yeah, that, that, that makes things a little bit more complicated. But yes, I think what Damon was getting ready to say, because it, it did happen a lot back then. Oh, mm -hmm. God, yes. It happened a lot in America. I mean, yes, just based on the land grab that they had in the 1800s. 
you'd have these people with these homesteads who had acreage and acreage and acreage, and the United States government would come in and say, eminent domain, we need this. Mm-hmm. And boom, suddenly these people have nothing. Mm-hmm. So I can understand and I can sympathize, but the minute you cross that line into violence against persons and violence against property, the government will show no mercy after that. Yeah, which is the unfortunate thing. It sounds to me, and I'm looking at this not as a historian, not as an expert, as an outsider, and I feel like both sides in this conflict were just constantly escalating things and not seeking actual resolution. And no, I it's think- a case of both of them were too stubborn to meet a middle ground. Mm-hmm. They could not see each other's sides. They right. could not see the point. Mm-hmm. And so that created the conflict right there. Mm-hmm. Yes. There was no compromise. Nothing. Like, you, you have to have compromise to have peace. Mm-hmm. It sounded like neither side was willing to have that compromise. And it sounds like they all learned a very hard lesson. There were people who lost their lives over this, lost their livelihoods over this. That completely changed how, it seems like, how public projects were done after that. They said, screw that, we're just going to go build airports where we don't need to worry about it anymore. (laughs) Well, and I like that, that they, in what, 89, you said, where they came out and pretty much said, yeah, we screwed up. Oh, no, that was 1995 when the the prime minister apologized. But they they recognized, like, oh, good Lord, we did the wrong thing. We did this so badly. It was poorly conceived, poorly executed. There were bad actors on both sides. Let's never do this again. Yeah. But unfortunately, it sounds like people in Narita and Sanrizuka, they have long memories. I mean, when you're finding mortar cannons in the forest right outside the airport in 2008. When was the last World War II soldier found? Uh, in the Who 70s. Yeah. I just so, I did an episode about that in uh, Atragon. So. Yeah. So, yes, it's the same thing. The memories are long because the culture is forever. Mm-hmm. And so they don't let things go. No. Yeah. Even more so than American culture, I feel like Japanese culture is a very, very, very proud culture. They and they are. have a, they, I'm not going to say they hold a grudge, but they don't forget things as easily maybe as we do in the West. No. Japanese culture, most Asian culture in general is based on honor and shame. Mm-hmm. And family. And yeah. family names. And yeah, you know, everything everything leads back to that. You don't want to bring shame to your family. Yes. You don't want to bring shame to your your house. You don't want to bring shame to yourself. That's why the whole politeness thing is so overblown in Japan. It and is. Part of that is also living on an island with very little place for expansion. Yes. So you, you have, have to be to nice to, to everybody. Mm-hmm. But here's one more question. I'll throw this out here for a quick little bit of discussion in this segment. Another argument that Kaiju Transmissions made in that presentation was that they said this movie was propaganda. What? What? Yeah. I mean, I mean, okay. So, given the the massive info dump that you just put on us, I can kind of see it. I actually can see it too. Yeah. Um, but I saw that at the beginning because it was so pro construction and having the villagers admit we were just holding out for more money. Can we get it at your original price now? Mm-hmm. I could see what they were trying to do, which is in stark contrast to something like the Gomez episode of Ultra Q. Mm-hmm. Yes, they had the that very same first issue. episode. You had these miners having that, boom, suddenly construction is stopped, not due to obviously villagers, but to a, mon- a couple of monsters, actually. So that theme seems to run through all of their media at the time, and they were obviously concerned about it. So I would say that, yeah, this probably is a little pro-progress propaganda couched in a children's movie 
So do you retract your earlier statement that there's no social commentary? (laughs) No. (laughs) No, that is a hill I'm going to die on. You are Uh, a fool, sir. No, okay, so... Yes, given the given everything that you have dumped upon us in the last what feels like an hour, um, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> you didn't think you get a lecture today, did you? I didn't think I was going to sit through a lecture. I thought I was done with those years ago. <laughs> like, and it's I mean, I, it's no TED talk, but you did well, Nathan. But no, I do retract my statement about no social commentary. And I think what maybe I was driving at earlier was. I think, Damon, you brought up the point about social commentary first, where there was always some kind of underlying message with a Honda film. Whereas with these Gamera films, it just feels like big, dumb fun for the most part. But I think with a Gamera film, the themes and the concepts and all the commentary, you have to dig a little bit deeper for it with the Gamera films. Whereas with the Honda films, especially with Godzilla, they're a little bit more front and center. I think that may be the best way I know how to bring it full circle. I would agree with that statement. Yeah, makes sense. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. My apologies for, for my not TED Talk. I'm sorry. I should have ended the presentation that way. It's like, this well, because has, it was so long this has been my talk. TED Talk. Yes. So with all of that out of the way, I'm going to do something I haven't done in a long time. And since I don't want to have to fight with the time crunches imposed upon me by the board, I'm going to do a little bit of listener feedback right now with you two gentlemen here with me. So maybe we can get a quick little conversation out of this. I do want to give a couple of quick shout-outs to Chris Nigro, who is the publisher for Wild Hunt Press, who actually just published a new book of mine with Nick Hayden and Aaron Brosman. It's called Zorzam and the God Who Devours. It's a sword and sorcery story about a barbarian cooler than Conan. But he left a very involved, there's no other way to put it, essay. <laughs> on Facebook when I shared the Latitude Zero episode in a Facebook group. And we had a very interesting dialogue where he was responding to what I had to say about that movie's concept of utopia and whether or not utopia was actually achievable. So Utopia's. we're getting two essays for the price of three. This I'm not going to read it. Are you nuts? <laughs> <laughs> and then also related to the Latitude Zero episode, I got a message from Kyo Toshi, who I think listens to every Kaiju and Tokusatsu I think she does, assistant. yes. I, I've heard her listener feedback on about f- at least five or seven of the ones I've yes. to. Yes. So. Yes. Yes. She sent me a quick little message. She loves asking me for my sources because she, I guess, loves reading about all of these things. And she told me at the beginning of that, before she made her request, that she appreciated the analysis of the film and not just going into the minutia of it, to which I said thank you. I also have a couple of comments because I, uh, I got to tell you, I didn't expect the YouTube versions of these episodes to be people's go-to place to listen to the podcast, but apparently they have. And I've got a few comments, some of which are a little old, I will admit, but I'm going to slowly get through this backlog. And one I have is actually from over a year ago for episode six from a guy going by the username of Nigel. That's all it says. I tell ya, my aunt used to send me VHS tapes from San Francisco full of monster movies taped off of the Sci-Fi Channel because I didn't have cable. Oh, sounds like my life. King Kong Escapes was the first movie on the first tape I got, and I immediately fell in love with Miehama. Who didn't? (laughs) It was the coolest non-Godzilla, non-Gamera movie I had ever seen. Well, I just saw Kaite 
Gunkin, which I think is Atragon. So there you go. A little nostalgia about watching King Kong Escapes on VHS. That is something I've never done. Like, I did not see King Kong Escapes until my late 20s when it was already on Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Wow. God, I feel old compared to you guys. I saw this in <laughs> back in late 70s on Mon- the Creature Features on Saturday in Los Angeles. Mm. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I was, was good. They showed a lot. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of- I also... Had this is from nine months ago. I had a comment on episode 15, which was Battle in Outer Space with Luke, Jack, and Eddie. Shout out to Luke from a guy named James Gill. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it ended up being a little bit of a conversation where he talked with me about how listening to the episode made him realize that he had that Toho three pack that had Mothra, H Man, and Battle in Outer Space. And he somehow never actually watched Battle in Outer Space. So he was going to go and do that. <laughs> and then he started talking about the Mysterians and how he wanted to watch the Mysterians. And I said, well, that DVD is long out of print. But it was a pleasant little conversation we had on YouTube about all of that. And then I want to, this is actually something much more recent, but I want to make sure that I bring it up because just like on your show, Michael, well, both of your shows, you like talking about your iTunes reviews. Yes, we love talking about our iTunes reviews because we're narcissistic and we <laughs> we just like talking about ourselves because we're just such interesting people. Yes, this is why we're podcasters. We are basically yes. holding people hostage to listen to us. Yes, we love the sounds of our own voices because we have all the important things to say. Yes. Meanwhile, Damon is just sitting there going, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> like no, no, I'm, I'm withholding my psychological evaluation. <laughs> 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 I'm a little terrified of this psychological evaluation. Uh, uh, yes, Jimmy, I know you're equally as terrified. Uh, well, Jimmy's just him analyzing be you. Has- I would be really terrified of him analyzing you. I'm just saying. With your PTSD PC. and everything else. Yeah, we're sitting at this little round table here, and I can just kind of see Jimmy in the corner of my eye just every time Nathan says something that's meant to be snark, just kind of rolling his eyes. And so I guess that just gives us a glimpse into your and his relationship. Yes, indeed. But anyway, my friend Dallas from Geek Devotions actually updated his iTunes review. He added another paragraph. Oh, wow. Which okay. I really appreciated. He, uh, his username is GS Panda. He posted this just last month. I'm just going to read the new paragraph. Updated review. I honestly can't believe the amazing community this podcast is helping to create. So many great folks are surrounding this podcast, helping to create not just an educational podcast, but a fascinating storyline behind the podcast. So there you go, folks. And that includes both of you, wonderful gentlemen. You are part of that community, and I am beyond happy to have you in it. You are so kind. You are. I mean, it's Nathan, I'm going to take back every bad thing I've ever said about you just because of that. Uh, you'll create a rift in time if you do that. I, I'm just... oh, I'm, oh, shoot. You're right. <laughs> yes, Jimmy. Time travel and all of that funny business. Trust me. You're talking to the guy who's trying to unravel Godzilla versus King Ghidorah. All right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yes, I know. But because I am contractually obligated, I now have to get to another. It's not feedback, but something that, like I said, I'm required to do so I can not only keep my job, but stay terrestrial. I have to read this week's board. Honestly, I don't want to have to set through another list of rambly things some supervillain came up with that make absolutely no sense whatsoever. Are you calling me a supervillain? No, the board. 
The board. The board, of course. The board. I'm talking about the board. I'm talking you know, about I was able to part that out. <laughs> anyway, I have to get through their newest press release. So here we go. <sighs> Fine. All right. First... The Monster Island Board of Directors would like to take this moment to thank all who made this week's special Kaiju and You seminar such a roaring success. Okay. We could not have done it without the support of so many of our employees and volunteers willing to give up their precious time to learn how we can better coexist with our Kaiju brothers and sisters. Okay, I already have one really weird pseudo sister. I don't need to start calling the kaiju brothers and sisters. That sounds Nathan, we're all brothers and sisters. If you say so. We also apologize for the last minute nature of the meeting, but from what we understand, Miss Perkins handled herself with flying colors. We could not have done it without her. If you see Miss Perkins out today, please take a moment to show her your appreciation for all that she does for our humble monster island. I tried to speak to her today on my way in, but she just kind of snubbed me. Like, I guess it was her. Like, is she the one with the big hair and the lightning oh, bolts and the whatever the thing? Yeah, with she, the, uh, with the, the lightning bolt earrings and the blue hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, does she wear leather all the time, it being so hot here? Only on occasion. You must have okay. caught her when she was off the clock. I think. Yeah, ah, gotcha. Well, I tried to speak to her and she snubbed me. So well, yeah. well, when I saw her, she had the power suit on with the shoulders. Carrying a clipboard, she was very, very, very precise and mm-hmm. very clipped about everything. Mm-hmm. Well, that was last minute. So because somebody mm-hmm. didn't fulfill their obligations and picked me up for this episode, <clears throat> Jimmy. So I was running a little bit late. So Dude, maybe when I ran into her, she was already off the clock. Yeah, shut up, Jimmy. Stop trying to interrupt us. Okay. Anyway, second paragraph so we can get this over with. (laughs) Second, we would like to briefly address the ramblings we've been seeing on social media by a certain D-list personality in regards to the amount of time humans spend in kaiju cinema. I know exactly who they're talking about and calling him a D-list personality I think is a wee bit generous. There was also something to do with Kevin Smith, but we don't get into that. We respect his work too much to stoop to that level. Let us assure you, the bond between humans and kaiju is one that is strong and can never be broken. Humans play a vital role in maintaining the coexistence between the monsters and our environment. This is a bond that will endure for many decades to come. Documenting these experiences is of equal importance to both us and the success of our island home. Thank you one and all for helping us see this vision realized and for helping us to find a better way forward for ourselves and our children. Signed, the Monster Island Board of Directors. Nathan, can you answer me a question? Because this is not the only time I've heard that phrase. Uh, uh, shoot, a better a better person? No. Uh, uh, find a better way forward? Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that. Why is it that every time I run into somebody on this island, they repeat that phrase? It's it's a little bit cultish, if you ask me. It is. I have no answer for you there. At least none well, that I can say uh, on the air. Okay, well, maybe we can talk about that off the air. Because, yes. honestly, it was giving me the willies the last time I was here. I literally landed in the airport and started my way here as quickly as I could. And, like, ten people just kept repeating it. Find a better way forward. Find a better way forward. It was so weird. Like what, what is up with that? Yeah, I don't quite know. Well, once I you certainly find don't better know. Way forward, mm-hmm. what? you will know what the phrase means. 
Maybe. Is it like that enlightened that I can only know the answer once I have found my better way forward? Or it could be brain parasites controlling them. It's good. Yes. I mean, I could ask the representative from the board that's supposed to, to fly me home of what it actually means. I'm sure they'll want to get into it. I'm sure there's no negative consequences that could come to that when you're flying over an ocean. No, nothing at all. No, 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 absolutely not. No, no, what are you talking about? Uh, I mean, if Jimmy can get Danny here on that Pteranodon bot, you'll be fine. You never did ask me how I got to the island. That's a good question. I'm surprised you didn't tell us. So uh, last minute, how did you get here? Well, this is a story because, you know, back in 2007, I was in Japan. and uh, Oh, here we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I just happened to run into Johnny Sacco at a unicorn convention. What? I know, right? I mean, who, what are the odds? I mean, he was looking good. He was still in good shape. Sadly, it wasn't the super secret agency convention that we thought it was. It was a My Little Pony offshoot that we were rather embarrassed to be around. Oh, so you so, got to hang out with Japanese bronies. I bet that was fun. Yeah, that was, it was very interesting. But to alleviate our embarrassment collectively... I decided to take him with me on a tour of Tezuka Museum in Kyoto, you know, the home of, of uh, manga and anime. It was mm. fantastic. And we kind of kept in touch all these years. And when the opportunity to come onto your podcast and head over to the island, uh, well, I phoned him up and asked to borrow Giant Robo for the weekend. <gasps> wow. Okay. Hot dang. The, you you know, know, uh, Jim, I, uh, Jimmy is green as the Hulk with envy right there. I can, it was, I can it see was it an experience. It's something I've wanted to do since I was a child when I was watching the, the tapes. And mm -hmm. I just got to say, I wish I'd remembered to dress warmly. Yeah. Because I forgot that he carries people in his open palms and the wind chill mm. factor over the Pacific at this time of year is incredibly unforgiving. I mean, so. I got to say, uh, you must have had someone uh, take care of your hair when you get here, because I was expecting a Phoenix Wright hairdo, because <laughs> it looks like he's been yeah, in a well, tunnel for too long, you know? At, at the moment, my hair is rather long, because I'm filming a, an, a, the fantasy movie on next weekend, so he'd tell me not to cut it. Normally, it's rather short, but uh, okay. no, I did a quick visit to the lavatory and spruced myself up, just to make you, sure. I mean, you do have an impressive mane. I'm just looking at it right here, and in the lights of the studio, it's luminescent. Thank you. I work very hard. I can't say the hair that I have because I haven't gone bald, which is great. Yes. But now, gentlemen, it's time to do the Patreon shoutouts. Go show! Chris Cook! Travis Alexander! Danny Dumada! Eli Harris! Me, because I'm beautiful! Damon Noise! You put some extra feeling into that one for not-so-obvious reasons. And then finally, Bex from Redeemed Otaku! <laughs> oh, that was fun, guys. That's always fun. That actually might be one of the most fun segments of the show now. <laughs> it's certainly an experience I'll never forget. <laughs> this whole episode has been an experience I will certainly never forget. Of course. Uh, <laughs> well, I worked hard to make it memorable. As you should. Well, I mean, really, the only thing I'm, the only thing I'm taking away from this episode is this smell. Like, why the hell is this smell not going away? You need to take that up with Jet. That's all I'm saying.
Oh, calm down, man. Okay. Uh, you, Jet, yeah, with all of the new doohickeys on yourself, do you have like, I don't know, some sort of vent that you could suck all the air in and purify it or something? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> just, you do you, man. But just be prepared for more memes the closer we get to singular point. I'm just saying. Sometimes it's a benefit to have hyponosmia and therefore no sense of smell. Yes. What you said. <laughs> <laughs> I just prefer the term nose blindness. I, whatever. Oh, wow. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Yeah, there you go. There you go. But now I need to let everybody know what our upcoming episodes are going to be. Some of you might be a little disappointed because do, well, as you'll soon understand, the year of Gamera is actually going to take a little bit of a break. We'll still have a Gamera film covered next month, but there's a very important event coming up. So, First off, in preparation for that, kaiju lovers, the next movie we cover will actually be 2019's Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and I will be joined with who might potentially be some of the biggest guests that I've had on the show so far, and I'm really excited about this. I will be joined by the Omni-Viewer himself of YouTube fame, and possibly his little psychic snazzy. I'm not 100% sure, but you know what, Jimmy? If he shows up, he can hang out with you in the producer booth. Yes, I know the two of you have been emailing back and forth, trading stories about your respective hosts. As long as you're saying nice things, I'm okay with that. Oh, you can't say that they were all nice? Of course. All right. Anyway, some friend you are. But... I will also be joined by another YouTube star in the kaiju sphere. His name is Brandon Jacobs, host of Up From The Depths. So that should prove to be very exciting, especially since both of them are very positive toward this movie, and I really want that to be a positive episode. You said Brandon? Brandon is from Up From The Depths? Yes. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, his video on the importance of Godzilla King of the Monsters literally made me cry. Mm. Really? So there you go. Brandon, if you listen to this, you made me cry. And then, gentlemen, the reason I am covering King of the Monsters is it's finally, finally happening. I only had to redo my podcast schedule five times because of it. But yes, we're finally getting the rematch of the century. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, Godzilla versus Kong. It's about dang time. Isn't that right, gentlemen? Abso-freaking-lutely. Listen <laughs> <laughs> here, ladies and gentlemen, the slobber of the century. We're down here in Agasawara waiting, waiting for these two titans of power to take it on the chin. <laughs> Hashtag never Kong. <laughs> Here, let's take some hot takes right now, gentlemen. Team Kong or Team Godzilla? Team Godzilla because Godzilla has a mean slap <laughs> towards Kong in that trailer. <laughs> yes, Go- uh, Godzilla, master of the kaiju pimp slap. How about you, Damon? I'm going with Team Godzilla only because he, you know, he has Godzuki in his corner. He's got that that <laughs> nice, angry little nephew who just ticks him off. 
every single day. He's got to take his rage out on someone, and there's his big monkey grabbing a tree. He's got to go down. He's oh, got to go down. Absolutely, absolutely, Damon. I just don't <laughs> see how that big ape can just. I don't see how that big ape can. Uh, can no, no, uh, no, no, no. He's got no, the weight no, advantage. He's got no, the. He's no, got no, the size no, no, no. I don't see how that big ape can stand up against just this giant radioactive lizard that just pissed off all the time. I mean, come on. Godzilla's just going to come in and whoop that monkey's rear end. Uh, it's going to be hilarious to watch. It's going to be the battle of the century, and I'm just waiting for it, uh, along with everybody else in the fandom, just so I can quit watching people complain and, and uh, all this. I can't even finish the dang sentence. <laughs> dollars to donuts. Dollars to donuts. There's going to be controversy. There's going to be uh, – it's going to come down to a judge's decision at the final match. Hands, hands down, that's exactly what's going to happen. And now, ladies and gentlemen, through the power of editing, you haven't heard all of that. But everyone here on the island had to hear all of that. I don't know if I should feel sorry for them or not, but it was highly entertaining, I must it say. It was truly, truly beautiful. beautiful. It was. Now that we have gotten all of that out of our systems, I can now let you know that my guest for that episode will be my friend Eric Anderson, the founder of Nerd Chapel and a co-author of mine. We've worked on some book projects together. Eric and I go way back. We're college buddies, so I can't wait to have him on. And actually, interestingly, the movie is premiering the weekend of his birthday. So he's very excited about that. It's quite auspicious. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And this will be his first trip to the island, so he's very excited, to say the least. And he'll be helping me. I had to get some special permissions to do this, but... Eric will be joining me at the special premiere of Godzilla vs. Kong here on the island. So we'll get to basically be there to, to interview everybody as they come down the red carpet because the board is pulling out all the stops for this, of course. And I'll finally be able to finish the Conquest, which is long overdue at this point. Now, it's time for the shameless self-promotion, gentlemen, because no episode of MIFE would be complete without it. Except for the last time I was on the show, and you forgot my shameless plugs. I know. I'm a terrible person. You are. You go first. Okay, I will, gladly, because I love talking about myself. Okay, so uh, my name is Michael Hamilton. I am the co-host of a nifty little show called Kaiju Weekly, along with my good friend, Mr. Travis. Uh, I'm trying to think of a funny nickname for him alexander the great um, <laughs> what would you say alexander the great travis alexander, alexander the great. yeah there you go travis the great alexander that works so we do a weekly podcast where we like to embrace the sillier side of this genre and well you can tell because we use our rating system out of five godzukis which he loves uh, by the way Oh, I'm sure, because I have not had the pleasure of speaking with Mr. Godzuki or Mrs. Godzuki. Do we know the Godzuki? He's definitely a boy. Okay. I've not had the pleasure of speaking with Godzuki yet, but I imagine from what I heard from Travis the last time he was here on the island, Godzuki was very appreciative that we used him as our rating scale. So, you know, like I said, we do a weekly podcast. We do the news. We're, I learned a few months back, I think we we're the only weekly podcast that also does the news or at least tries to do the news. It's We've been so lucky lately yes. because there's been so much to talk about between oh, yes. 
all the new anime and Godzilla versus Kong and all that stuff going on and Shin Ultraman and, and all the exciting stuff that's coming this year. So, you know, we've been really, really blessed so far to have so much to talk about. So episodes for that come out every Wednesday, tentatively. Sometimes they're behind schedule. Depends on, you know, we do have real lives. So hey, you and I only have to compete a little bit because I put episodes out on Wednesday as well. <laughs> it's because you're a slacker. Anyway, um, <laughs> Well, oh, you said every, yeah, you do put out, yeah, I take that back. I shouldn't have said that. I jumped the gun, Nathan. I am so sorry. You put out episodes every other Wednesday, mm-hmm. but you do land on Wednesday. So we do have a little bit of a competition going there. So if your listeners want to go listen to my show, or at least mine and Travis's show, and tell me which one they like better, I know what the clear choice is going to be. Although, if any of you out there love me, sometimes you get double doses of the March End on a good Wednesday when I will continue to beat Elijah Thomas. No one needs that. Anyway, moving on. I also attempt to do my own show called the Kaiju Groupie Podcast, where I get to sit down and talk to other Kaiju and Tokusatsu fans, just like you, Nathan, and just like you, Damon, and we just have a good conversation. It's really off the cuff. It's long-form interview, conversation type. I think the last episode I published was back in November. I know it's been a while. I'm working on it, where I sat down with my friend Henry of It Came From Monster Movie, and then I sat down again before that with Frankie Washington, the fantastic comic book artist that's all over the fandom spreading positivity and art with his artwork and that was a lot of fun so I'm hoping to get back to that very soon but the one thing that I know that I will be raked over the coals for if I don't mention it right here is I am a co-creator for the Kaiju Ramen magazine which is just a magazine for fans by fans Travis and I or mainly Travis and then I just kind of came on board after the fact we decided to put together a little fanzine for the community to enjoy because we felt like that was a hole that needed to be filled like you know there are other magazines out there but this one is i want to say it's solely for this fandom and this and for this community and the reason i say that is because it does feature articles from people like you nathan Mm -hmm. and from real people within this fandom like we try to find as many unique voices to speak to this magazine as we can And, and when i say it's for everybody it absolutely is for everybody we are not excluding anybody at this point we want all voices heard. So that is a quarterly magazine. Right now it is digital. We did have our Kickstarter campaign be very, very successful. You can find more information about that on kaijuramamagazine.com. You can find me at Pod on Twitter or at the Groupie on Instagram if you like seeing me take pictures of toys because I'm a nerd and a child. So there you go. That's me in a nutshell. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> all right, Damon, what do you got for us? Okay, I do not have anywhere near as much information. My name is Damon Noyes. In my civilian life, I am a mailman, have been for the last 24 years. <clears throat> Coming up on 24 years, I should say. However, I am a stymied actor because I was just starting to get my resume together to go down to Hollywood when COVID shut us all down. However, I have been in a couple of independent movies in Oregon, one of which is already making the independent movie circuit, and uh, it is called Maxi. A slice of life about uh, drug abuse. Uh, it one sounds is, uplifting. Uh, beg pardon? It sounds uplifting. Oh, it's not. Trust <laughs> me. <laughs> but beyond that, all I can offer is my Twitter handle, which is King Kaiju Eight, and I can be found on Facebook pretty easily. And that's about it. That's all I've got. Yes. And you also do some puppetry work, I know, on YouTube. I do. I thank you for reminding me. I w- occasionally work with a man named David Mort who is a puppet creator, and he also has a YouTube channel called 
all things Z, which is entirely puppets, and I play a character called Jimmy the Rat. Not to uh, be sorry, confused with Jimmy, Jimmy from that. Sorry, I'm sorry. No, no, I got that totally wrong. Joey. Oh. Joey, Joey Ratsputin <laughs> and the King of the Rats, and he's very Brooklyn, you know, because cats carry plague, or rats carry plague, and therefore, you know, zombies Brooklyn. and whatever. <laughs> so, I'm also doing puppetry for a movie next week. Uh, unfortunately, the character does not have any lines, but I am doing the puppetry, as well as background character work. Other than that, all I have is stage work, which, of course, I don't have any B-reel for. Nah. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> That's all right. But it sounds like you both have a lot going on, just in different avenues, which I like. Way too much, if you ask me. <laughs> I, I know all about having too much. Let me Yeah, tell but it you. sounds like you guys aren't happy unless your plate is overfilled. Actually, Something I wish like with my day job, on top of everything else I've got going on, I kind of wish I was more bored. If I'm being honest. <laughs> yeah, well, we already live in interesting times. But yes, thank you very much, guys. And if any of you out there would love to send us feedback or join the Patreon for the podcast, all of that information will be in the credits. Speaking of which, Jimmy, cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marching. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is at themonsterisla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy and the Monster Island Board of Directors at Monster Isla BOD. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations! And be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and Twitch. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive Live Edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Open Way, Battle with the Colossus by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. All film and audio clips belong to the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can also support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon, the Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara!